1: Everyone, This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. It's Monday morning. In just a few short hours, you will be taking your children or maybe seeing your grandchildren go off to school. And if they live in New York or New Jersey, they will not have to wear a face mask. Hallelujah. Glory, glory, Haleoski. This is wonderful. I have been on a crusade, as many others have for doing away with these face mask provisions for children. And I applaud Mayor Adams in New York and Governor Hochul in New York and Governor Murphy in New Jersey for easing up on these face mask restrictions. But as I said on the Cats Roundtable Sunday morning, and if you're not listening to that show, I do hope you'll listen. It's every Sunday, uh, 8 until 10. I'm on the first half hour with John. He's kind enough to give me a platform, which if you see the other boldface names that are part of that show on a regular basis – That is a real honor, genuinely, for me to be on that show. But as I said, I can't understand for the life of me why they are still mandating that children under the age of five be masked. So children over the age of five get to not wear a mask in school. And children under five, you still have to wear a mask. To me, this is just crazy. And uh, look, I'm sure this will go away in a week, two weeks, three weeks, a month, whatever the case may be. But it underscores a couple of things. One, the inconsistency and the irrationality of a lot of these COVID-era restrictions, including the mask mandate. But let's put that aside for a second. One of the things that I was really – that I've been attuned to, and I've done some segments on the radio about this. I've talked with a lot of parents about this, talked with a lot of educators about this. Is how much COVID over the last two and a half years has impacted children. Actually, it's not, it's about the last two years exactly because it was March of 2020 when the world sort of shut down. And I ran into a woman after church yesterday who's a college professor and she was telling me about how their changes, she's a teacher at LaGuardia Community College, how many changes they're seeing at their college and how many things are starting to open up again. So I did some research in terms of what higher education institutions have been doing differently over the last two years. Some are obvious, some you've heard about a hundred times, some you may not have heard about. And one of the ones I'm not talking about vaccine mandates or masking or more Zoom classes instead of in-person classes. One of the things that, we've seen a movement away from over the last two years, and they're talking about maybe making this permanent, is the reliance on standardized tests like the SAT and the ACT. The Iowa Board of Regents, for instance, voted to become test optional permanently. That means Iowa State University, the University of Iowa, and the University of Northern Iowa will no longer require the SAT or ACT for admissions. Now, you might think, who cares what Iowa does? Well, they're not the only ones. In December, Harvard University extended its, what they're calling a test optional period, through the class of 2030. That's the current current admission cycle is for the class of 2026. So for the next four years at least, Harvard is going to be, Test optional. You don't have to take the SAT or the ACT. So that Harvard decision attracted a great deal of attention because, after all, Harvard is Harvard. And that stance makes it easier for other highly competitive colleges to follow the same path. So you're seeing state schools, like in Iowa, move away from the SAT and the ACT, and you're seeing elite schools. Move away from the SAT and the ACT. So beyond individual colleges and universities that are going test optional, there are a lot of states that are making this move. In Colorado, Governor Jared Paulus, who's a Democrat, signed legislation um, uh, in May making all states, public colleges and university, test optional. In Illinois, Governor Pritzker signed legislation to require all public colleges and universities in the state to offer test-optional admissions. In Montana, the board of the Montana University System voted to make SAT and ACT scores optional. In Washington State, all of the public four-year colleges decided to move to test-optional. In May, University of California agreed to make all campuses test-blind, meaning SAT and ACT scores Scores will not be looked at in making admissions decisions. Now, think of that, not even looked at. So the National Center for Fair and Open Testing said that nearly 80% of four-year colleges will not require the SAT or ACT for admissions this year. So this was a movement that was already in place before the pandemic. But the pandemic seems to have only accelerated it. We are seeing colleges move away from the SAT and the ACT. What do you think about this? 800-848-WABC. That's 800 The other news on the SAT front is they are changing this test. Now, they've changed it a number of times they've went from uh, having it be on a scale of 1600 to being on a 2400 scale to go back to 1600 but now uh, th- and a lot of this is just keeping up with the times no more filling in bubbles or waiting for proctors to collect exam sheets the sat is now going digital among other ma- modifications that is going to begin next year uh students taking the tests internationally will be the first ones Introduced to the new format in 2023, followed by a 2024 launch in the United States. I don't understand that. Why would the U.S. students, the American students, get a digital test a year after the international students? I guess maybe to work out the kinks. I don't know. But uh, in addition to that, they are shortening the length of the test, which I think is a very good idea. And they're allowing graphing calculators throughout the math portion and they're going to give folks faster results. I can't believe that they have not had the SAT on a digital format for years now. I remember when I applied to graduate school, I had taken the SAT and then I went to college and then I applied to graduate school. When I when I went to graduate school, you took your GRE on a computer. And I thought, "Well, that's great. You get the results right uh, pretty much right away. I don't remember if it was instant or close to instant." Whereas waiting weeks for your SAT results. So I'm curious what your take is on these SAT changes, number one, on standardized testing in general, number two. And number three, this movement that colleges and universities and whole states are embarking on to move away from the SAT and the ACT, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. I have very mixed feelings about this. I'll be honest. I, the only school I ever really wanted to go to was New York University. I knew I wanted to go. I'm a New Yorker, lifelong New Yorker. Can't imagine living anywhere else, working anywhere else, or going to school anywhere else. So I would, I only wanted to go to a school that was a good school, but a school that was in New York. So I wanted to go to NYU. And now, when I was in high school, I've talked about this before, my grades were not great. Uh, not because I wasn't, um, you know, i i mean that was exactly how i am now i mean in terms of uh in terms of whatever intellectual strengths i have whatever in terms of intellectual weaknesses i have but i never did homework so because i never did homework my grades were not great i would say they were average or slightly below average because the classes that have homework make up a substantial portion of your your grade you don't do well in when you don't do homework and i didn't do homework but my SAT scores were very good. I did I mean they're not very good. They're not Chuck Schumer or Elliot Spitzer level. They were decent. I did when I had it when it was on a scale of sixteen hundred, I got a thirteen ninety, and then I took the SAT twos um and the writing SAT two, which was strongly encouraged back then, and later they made it a full part of the test, uh, but then they then they did away with it. I got a seven fifty on that. So I had strong SAT scores. I don't know. If I would have gotten into NYU, except for my SAT scores for. So for me, the fact that NYU placed such an emphasis on the SAT, it really was what allowed me to overcome my poor grades in high school, because if it was just based on my grades, I never would have gotten into NYU in all likelihood. So I'm curious what you think about this movement. Uh, now, the reason I say I have mixed feelings about that is because when I was in high school, I took. I um, not only a special course in SAT prep offered by the school for free, but my parents put me in an SAT prep course. And this was incredibly helpful. I think it probably upped my SAT score by 300 points. Now, not not everyone has parents that can afford to send their child to an SAT prep course. I was lucky enough that I did. Now, they do offer a lot of free SAT prep, and I did both. I had the free course in school and the, you know, the course that you have to pay for. So is it really fair that because my parents had the wherewithal to send me to an SAT prep course, and what do they teach you in the SAT prep course? Those of you that have worked in testing know this. Those of you that have taken an SAT prep course know this. They teach you to answer the question and get the right answer when you don't know what the right answer is. They teach you how to answer reading comprehension questions without reading the whole document that you're supposed to be reading. They teach you tricks essentially. Now, that doesn't someone that knows that those tricks is no better a student, no better able to learn than someone that doesn't know those tricks, but you're able to get a far better score on the SAT. And if the college places an emphasis on the SAT, it's able to get you into a new, better school. So I have mixed feelings about this. I, uh, I was someone that benefited by the emphasis that colleges were placing on the SAT. But I recognize that maybe in years past there was a little too much emphasis on this standardized testing. I'm curious what you think. 800-848-WABC. We are going to bring you the latest on Ukraine. We're going to speak with Ted Galen Carpenter from the Cato Institute in about 15 minutes. And then uh, a little bit later, in our continuing effort to speak with all of the candidates for governor, we are going to talk with Rob Astorino, who's running as a Republican candidate for governor. We've invited everybody on the show, Democrat, Republican, independent, third party. They're all welcome here. And uh, we're going to hopefully talk with them all. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Karen is in Rockland County. Hello, Karen.
2: Hello, how are you?
1: Hanging in there, Karen. Happy Monday.
2: I
3: <laughs> that's why it is Monday.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs>
3: um I taught for forty years in elementary school and I always thought there was too much emphasis on testing. That's what the principal's administrators are worried about was making sure that, you know, they do well on their test But Um, I don't say get rid of the test altogether, but they should gear the like the essay questions to the age of the students and, the, you know, the level of interest because they had stories in there that these kids weren't interested in. After the first line, they were just, you know, you know just putting anything down. And I would say to them, did you finish reading the Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you check it over? Oh, yeah. I said, I couldn't even do it that fast. So don't tell me that you're uh... a <laughs> But uh, I don't get rid of tests altogether. Tell me that's dumbing down society. Just make it less uh, emphasis on it.
1: Well, it seems like uh, the colleges are doing exactly that. And uh, look, uh, uh, women or girls have tended to do worse on the SAT than boys. That's one of the, readings that, the reasons they added that writing section because women did or girls did better at the writing section than the boys did. So the thinking was adding that writing section uh, gave wi- girls an opportunity to be competitive with, with boys. There's also been complaints for years. That these SAT exams and other standardized tests are culturally biased against minorities. So, um, look, maybe this is just sort of bound to happen. I think the change to digital testing, as opposed to a pen and paper, a pencil and and scantron, that makes sense, right? I mean, come on, we're in the twenty first century. If you're going to go to college these days, you're going to have to know how to fill out answers on a computer. That makes sense. The shorter test day absolutely makes sense. I remember when I took my SAT twos, I don't know how they do it now, but when I took my SAT twos, the way they did it was you can choose how many SAT twos that you want to take and you don't have to take them all in one day, but you know me, I wanted to get them all over with in one day. So I took three. I took writing first, then American history and then European history by and all of these tests were something like an hour and a half, maybe even two hours. And I spent the whole day just testing the whole day. By the time of that third test, I didn't even know my own name, let alone the name of Alexander the Great. I, I was – and my scores reflected that. I had, I think, a 750 on the, on the first test, uh, a 690 on the second test, and then a uh, something like a 600 on the third test just because by the end of the day, you're zonked out. So I do think a shorter test is better. I don't want to feed into the uh, the, infant, the infinitesimally small and ever-shrinking attention span of the American student these days, but I think a shorter test is better. Eight hundred eight four eight wabc Michael is near his bedroom. Hello, Michael. What's happening near your bedroom?
4: Unfortunately, nothing much. <laughs> but I, I strongly disagree with you. By, by the way, first of all, when I was taking the SATs, the first one you took was called the PS.
1: Right, but that's it. Doesn't count for anything. Right,
4: but you learned from test. that. Sure. One second, I did horribly on the math in the first in the first SAT. Mm. Why? Because I would you go to a math. question. Hello. And str-
1: we lost Michael there. A lot of action happening near his bedroom. Apparently, Dale in South Carolina. Hello, Dale.
3: Hello? Dale, what's on your mind, pal? Okay, I'm glad I got a hold of you. I, I had to do something real quick, and then when I picked up the phone, I heard Dale. Oh, good. Um, we got you. I, uh, when I took my SAT, it's on a Saturday morning. Hello? Yes, Dale. I'm listening. Oh, you still are. Thank you. Yes. People are so accustomed
1: my... to being constantly interrupted that when I don't interrupt them for more than 10 seconds, they think they're
3: gone. But go ahead. You still are. Oh, thank you. All right. But anyway, on a Saturday morning I took my uh, SAT. And uh I made like uh, a 20, I think it was a 23 on my English and then on my math a 24. You are know, you, wasn't but are, that. are
1: you sure that wasn't the ACT? because the the the, 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 SAT, the the sat is on a scale of 1 to 800 uh, verbal and 1 to 800 math
3: yeah well all i knew is one part the first part was uh ma- uh writing or something you know like english and the second part was math you know that that's what i took okay <laughs> i don't I, like i said see i'm class of 72 okay and i wanted to give you an idea there. Um, what uh, I kind of felt funny about is, you see, in the uh, tenth grade, the school um, was, you know, more whites and colored, okay, the, the the school. And then my junior year, all hell breaks loose. You know, it 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 was just everybody at one time. And uh, being a band student that I played in the band for like three years in the high school band, I feel that, uh, you know, the, the the people that had a brain and stuff, well, the tests that they took kind of, you know, they uh, kind of uh, worked them down a little bit to, you know, make everybody else feel, <laughs> it sounds crazy, I know.
1: I, I'm not sure I follow, Dale. I, I'm not sure I understand well, what you're what saying. Well, what I was
3: trying to get at is when they changed over these schools, um, well, 11 and twelfth was at this high school. And what, um, you know, h- however smart you are and all that was great. And the test you took was great. But it was something about um, grading the test. Some of them were graded down a little bit lower.
1: I see. Thank you, Dale. I I don't see, but I was not going to put any further effort into finding out what Dale was trying to say. 800-848-WABC. Tom is in Brooklyn. Hello, Tom.
5: Good morning, Frank. Um, Aren't these tests a measurement of how much knowledge the student has on various subjects? Uh, No,
1: no. The SAT-2s are, but the SAT really is a test of how well you take the SAT. That's what it's a test of.
5: Oh, Okay, well, and also, uh, well, I guess the SAT too is how much the level of learning and how do colleges really know the amount of intelligence or knowledge a student has? Standardized tests are a method to see how a student is progressing. Well, I, I agree again? with
1: that, but I, I guess the counter argument to that, I agree with, with what you said, but I guess the counter argument to that is that's why you'd look at their grades, and that's the well, better yeah, well, way.
5: Okay, well, here's the thing, and aren't that, isn't, uh, uh, I'm sorry, and aren't uh, that not that a way for to judge how well the school and or a district is doing? That's an indicator for where and what the schools need to work on. And, you know, if, if, like, if the school in a bad neighborhood, let's say, where the kids are running around rampant and, you know, all over the place, and you got this school up in, um, I don't want to say, you know, some really fancy neighborhood where the kids are just sitting there really polite and learning a lot more, I mean, I don't know. I mean, not to judge any school indirectly, but there are schools out there. We have to be pragmatic about this. There are schools out there that the kids are not learning because true. they don't want them. Well, you're, it's, right it's, about, just,
1: you know. you're right about that, Tom, and it's funny, and thank you for the call. One of the things that I saw – we're going to talk with Rob Astorino at 3.30, and he ran on in 2014 opposing the Common Core. And one of the things that I was interested in seeing in 2014 – was how parents on the left and parents on the right and a lot of parents that were nonpolitical all came together opposing the idea of emphasizing standardized tests. A lot of parents were not happy with the emphasis on standardized tests. They felt it put too much pressure on children and that it wasn't a fair measure of their academic, of their knowledge, quite frankly. We, we got uh, Ted Galen Carpenter waiting in the w- w- wings. Let me try and squeeze in at least one or two more here. Ro- Norman is in Brooklyn. Hello, Norman.
6: Yeah. Hi, Frank. Um, I, I'm, I have a bias with the SAT. I mean, I had a crappy uh, GPA in high school and it was the SAT that actually got me into Brooklyn College and uh, I wound up graduating from there. So uh, basically, uh, I'm thankful to the SAT. I got the scholarship, a little money I got from it. And, uh, you know, for me, uh I'm happy for the SAT.
1: Well, I, I mean, I was in the same boat, but I recognize, and, uh, you know, my parents went to Brooklyn College, too, so you're in good company. But I recognize that what was good for me is not necessarily good for crafting academic or educational policy. So I'm curious what you think of these changes that they're making and what you think of schools deemphasizing the SAT and ACT. John is in Brooklyn. Hello, John.
4: Hi, Frank. Yeah, you know, I I am really uh, of, of mixed v- opinions about this. I think if we had a national standardized curriculum, then I would be in favor of getting rid of all the tests, SAT and ACT. But since we have regional differences in education, I think it's important to have some sort of standardized mm. test whether it's the SAT or ACT. That's a
1: great point, uh, John. Um, so uh, um, it's safe to say you're not on board with these colleges de-emphasizing it.
4: Well, I, you know, that that's a – I've been following the trend, partly because, as you know, I've been interested in the whole issue about the standardized admissions exams for the specialized high schools in New York City. And uh, my way of thinking, I'm wondering whether or not by getting rid of the tests they may be – Uh, eliminating some excellent candidates for those who may not really be able to handle the academic work at the colleges and universities in uh, question. That's a
1: good point, John. Thank you. Uh, it's always good to talk with you and to hear from you. I got a break here because Ted Galen Carpenter is waiting in the wings to discuss Ukraine. We can revisit this a little later if you want. If you want to call in a bit later, we can uh, we can talk further on this or any of the other subject we're covering. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. Says the other side of midnight on 77 WABC. I'm Frank Morano. We are now in day 12 of this. Russian invasion of Ukraine. You see these images of people dying, of people fleeing their home, of people seeing their homes destroyed. You hear stories about people forced to deal with uh, loss of energy. You hear stories of a million and a half refugees forced to leave their country. It is literally an international crisis. Well, I think the question that America is trying to deal with, wherever you come down on the political spectrum, is what should America do next? You have people like uh, Vladimir Zelensky urging the establishment of a no-fly zone. You have people like uh, Senator Lindsey Graham urging the assassination of Vladimir Putin. You have uh, others urging for uh, further sanctions. Vladimir Putin saying further further sanctions would end up being an, what he would consider to be an act of war well someone who has been following this issue for a long time and who has been pretty accurate in terms of his warnings on this issue has been ted galen carpenter he's a senior fellow for defense and foreign policy studies at the cato institute kind enough to join us right now ted thanks so much for joining me at uh, what i know is a a tough time on the radio
7: yes frank it it certainly is tough this is probably the nastiest crisis europe has had in uh more than seven decades, really, since World War II. And we have to be very careful that we don't make a bad situation even worse. And a lot of the ideas being floated about very casually provide extreme danger for the United States to become fully entangled in this war, which right now is just between Russia and Ukraine, But we could become a belligerent, and the last thing we ought to want is a direct military confrontation between the United States and Russia. That automatically has nuclear implications. We need to fully recognize that with people tossing about proposals for involvement in this conflict, it could mean World War III and all that that implies. Mm -hmm. So we need a lot more caution. what we have seen coming out of
8: washington recently
1: the conventional wisdom over the course of the last two weeks has been that russia is the bad guy here that they are the aggressor and that they went into a a sovereign country you've pointed out that uh, a lot of this nato expansion which people have been warning against certain people for the last 30 years would have led to exactly this kind of a reaction from russia First, do you buy that wisdom—that um, or that conventional wisdom—that Russia is the the unabashed bad guy here? And two, can you explain to our audience how NATO's expansion might have led to Russia lashing out at a, uh, another country like this?
7: Well, let me say up front that uh, Putin's action is thoroughly over the top. Yes, there were uh, Western provocations a lot of them, I have documented them at length over the last more than 25 years, Uh, the United States and its NATO allies handled relations with Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union about as ineptly as a country could possibly handle those relations. Nevertheless, there was nothing uh, going on in the weeks immediately preceding the invasion to warrant a full-scale war on Russia's part that threatens Ukraine's independence and existence as, as a sovereign country. So Putin is primarily responsible in the short term for what happened. But the West bears a lot of responsibility for what happened over that period from the early 1990s right up to the explosion of this crisis and the worst thing that the United States and its allies did was expand NATO eastward to Russia's border in violation of promises implied in negotiations with uh, Moscow in the early 1990s. Now, That's kind of a violation of the basic principles of international relations. One major power does not move a powerful military alliance that it leads up to the borders of another major power and expect matters to turn out well. That is incredibly provocative. It is incredibly aggressive. And sooner or later, you're going to get pushback. And what we're seeing now is pushback big time.
9: In
1: terms of this idea of a no-fly zone, President Zelensky was, again, calling for this on Friday in his meeting with, uh, I think, a Zoom meeting with over 200 members of Congress. Explain to American audiences why the establishment of a no-fly zone wouldn't necessarily be in America's best interests and maybe not even in the interests of world security.
7: Well, let me say that... Zelensky and the Ukrainian government really have nothing to lose by proposing this. Uh, They will very likely lose this war sooner or later if nothing else is done. But you have to consider what imposing a no-fly zone means. In all likelihood, if the United States or NATO did this, Russia would not crawl away with its tail between its legs and obey that no-fly zone. They would send their planes, as they're doing now, in the skies over Ukraine. Well, then, whoever is enforcing the no-fly zone, the United States or NATO, would have to either uh, decide that, well, this was a bluff and it was a nice try, or they would actually have to enforce it. Enforce it means shooting down Russian planes. That means the West and Russia would be in a state of war automatically. And no one knows where that would go, how that might escalate. Russia might be content with just having aerial battles in the skies over Ukraine. That's possible. On the other hand, they might strike at NATO air bases where the, uh, enforcement planes were coming from Russia might even escalate and take out one or more of those bases with tactical nuclear weapons so this is an incredibly reckless idea and the people who are advocating this are utterly utterly irresponsible Americans who are advocating this are risking getting their country into a nuclear war with all the losses that that could imply
1: we have people just here. We're talking with Ted Galen Carpenter he's a senior fellow for defense and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute a couple of times over the course of the last two weeks I've pointed out that while what Putin and Russia is doing is completely inappropriate and I believe to some extent it's irrational from their perspective that you had to expect for some of the reasons that you stated a minute ago, some sort of blowback to NATO aggression. Now, occasionally when I mention that, or a guest will mention that, I'm deluged with emails and uh, phone calls, tweets, text messages, that somebody will say, well... I don't hear you exploring the root causes of any other problems in society or any other problems in, uh, in terms of international policy. One, I don't think that's true. But two, do you think that uh, I am somehow being insensitive to what Ukraine is going through by exploring what you, the United States and what NATO did to get us to this point?
7: I don't think you're uh, being insensitive at all. I think uh, it's absolutely imperative to know the full context and to face up to the full context. This was an incredibly insensitive, arrogant policy that the West pursued. And Russia has been sending warning signals for a long time. When the United States, George W. Bush specifically, talked about bringing Ukraine and Georgia into NATO, and Georgia acting as though the U.S. had its back, began to throw its weight around, Russia responded militarily and uh, seized control of two regions in Georgia that had been in a secessionist spat with the central government. That was warning number one. Warning number two is when the U.S. and its European allies interfered in Ukraine to illegally replace a pro-Russia government, an elected pro-Russia government, with a government favorable to NATO and the West. Putin responded by seizing Crimea. So you have to ask with these Western officials, how tone-deaf did they have to be to not pick up on any of those warnings? Putin was warning back in 2007, in his speech to the Munich Security Conference, that NATO was crowding Russia, that it was doing a number of things to jeopardize Russian security, and that Russian patience was running out. We needed to have listened to those warnings. Our policymakers in multiple administrations didn't. And now we're paying the price.
10: Mm,
1: And no, it it certainly is a shame. And uh, I find it tough to argue with your analysis. Uh, One of the things that we hear is that uh, the United States pledged when the Soviet Union was collapsing not to expand NATO eastward. Some folks have said that that Promise from George H. W. Bush and Jim Baker shouldn't really count because one, um, though that was was never written, and number because that was a pledge made to the Soviet Union, and then some of the countries that emerged as independent states after the Soviet Union uh, fell—Lithuania, Montenegro, Estonia, and even Ukraine—wanted to be part of NATO. So that commitment to a country, the Soviet Union, that no longer exists, shouldn't really be carrying the kind of weight that some ascribe to it. Where do you come down on the historical record? Did the United States pledge that we wouldn't be expanding NATO eastward? And in your view, is that pledge a legitimate one?
7: The latest scholarship on that, uh, including major articles by Professor John Shifrinson and Professor Mark Trachtenberg, over the last few years, shows that the U.S. certainly led Moscow to believe that NATO would never expand east of the border of a united Germany. And it's a pretty lame excuse uh, for people now to say, "Well, well, sucker, you didn't get it in writing." That's that's unworthy of the United States to take that kind of defense. And Russia was the principal successor state by far to the Soviet Union. So that kind of promise was certainly implied uh, to Russia in the years following the end of the Soviet Union. So it's it's a pretty lame defense for proponents of NATO expansion to come up with those kinds of excuses.
1: We've also heard that, look, Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in the aftermath of the Soviet Union's dissolution. And that part of the commitment that the West made to Ukraine was, oh, it's okay, Uh, Ukraine, give up your nuclear weapons and we'll protect you from further aggression from any other countries. Do we have, if not a legal obligation, something of a moral obligation because Ukraine did, in fact, give up their nuclear weapons to come through for them here?
7: I can understand that argument, and certainly uh, the United States uh, does not come off in a a very pleasant moral position. On the other hand, it's still not worth risking a war with a nuclear-armed Russia. I argued at the time, in the early 1990s, that Ukraine ought to think twice about giving up the nuclear arsenal it inherited from the Soviet Union. It didn't have operational control of the weapons at that time, but it certainly would have been possible for them to uh, refurbish them and, and uh, gain operational control given a number of years. Instead, they trusted to the paper promises. And uh, frankly, that might be a lesson for Ukraine no. and a lot of other countries not to count on paper promises from the U.S. or any other major
1: power. In fact, uh, you look at what happened in Libya, you look at what happened in a variety of other countries where they gave up uh, their weapons of mass destruction. You mean, why would any country give up their weapons of mass destruction after seeing what happened with Ukraine? It seems like if you have weapons of mass destruction, the one commonality is that the United States or any other country won't be messing with you.
7: That's a very good point, and I'm glad you brought up the Libya example. That was one where the United States and its Western allies talked Muammar Gaddafi into giving up his nuclear program. didn't even have a full arsenal yet, but he gave up the program, and we saw how that turned out for him. The United States and its allies, at the first opportunity, stabbed him in the back. So, again, there's a lesson there.
1: We've heard a great deal about sanctions, Uh, President Biden instituting a lot of sanctions on some individual Russians. Uh, We're seeing sort of the international community, even non-governmentally, organizations like FIFA, uh, movie studios, treat Russia as something of a global pariah. Do you think sanctions and this sort of uh, public shaming of Russia that the international community is doing will be effective in getting Russia to change their behavior?
7: The historical record shows rather clearly that in terms of the ability to inflict pain on ordinary people in a target country, sanctions work very, very well. In terms of getting a target government to capitulate and change its policies, especially if it's a high-priority policy, the record is dismal. So I would uh, be wary of thinking that Russia is going to cave on an issue like this, which clearly Moscow regards as absolutely central, simply because of the pain inflicted on the Russian people by these sanctions. I'm not optimistic at all that that strategy will succeed.
1: We're also seeing some countries that don't traditionally do this sort of thing, like Germany, come through with lethal military aid for the Ukrainians to fight the Russians. The United States, there have been calls, uh, some politicians locally, even doing gun drives uh, to collect guns to send to Ukraine to help the Ukrainians fight the Russians. Should the United States be arming uh, these Ukrainians? Do we have – are they – Occupying the moral high ground, the Ukrainians, and is what comes with that moral high ground aid from the United States government?
7: The U.S. has to be very, very cautious here. At what point does providing military aid to Ukraine make the United States a de facto belligerent in the eyes of Russia? Russians are not going to pr- appreciate having U.S. weapons being used to kill. Russian soldiers. And the more lethal, the more sophisticated the weapons, for example, the suggestion that we send jet fighter planes to Ukraine, uh, that's risking the United States stumbling into becoming a belligerent in this war and ending up fighting Russia that way. That's a proposal almost as dangerous as the no-fly zone. Mm. So we have to be very, very cautious about uh, being loose with military aid to Ukraine. Regardless of the merit of Ukraine's cause in this case, the United States needs to look at the, after the interests of its own people first and not risk sacrificing them to, uh, in the name of standing, uh, standing uh, together with Ukraine.
1: What about what someone like Senator – something like uh, what Senator Lindsey Graham is proposing, both on Twitter and then reiterated again on television, where he's called for entities within Russia to attack uh, – to uh, take Vladimir Putin out? The implication being that there should be some sort of a Brutus, some sort of an assassination within Russia. Is that responsible for an American politician to be calling for the assassination of a world leader? How does this end?
11: Somebody has to step up to the plate. Is there Brutus in Russia? Is there a more successful Colonel Stoppenberg in the <laughs> Russian military? The only way this sh- ends, my friend, is for somebody in Russia to take this guy out. You would be doing your country a great service and the world a great service.
7: Well, I'll tell you, uh, first of all, there's a law on the books in the United States not to be involved in the assassination of foreign, uh, foreign officials. Secondly, um, you know, both can play at that game. And once the U.S. goes down that path, I'm not sure I'd want to be a high-level U.S. official because that would put a target on their backs. The Russians, again, uh, might feel they have nothing to lose by escalating this.
1: So, Ted, we've talked about sanctions. We've talked about a no-fly zone. We've talked about uh, lethal aid to the Ukrainians. It seems like there are no great options here on that front. What, then, should the United States do as we go forward here, aside from keeping your warning in mind to be careful, what does be careful look like? What should we do?
7: Well, I would say the first thing we should do is propose a diplomatic settlement uh, in Ukraine Uh, with the United States and its allies backing off, affirming that Ukraine will never become a member of NATO, uh, trying to codify a fully neutral status for Ukraine, something akin to uh, Austria in the Cold War, or even a uh, Russian-leaning neutrality like Finland. Uh, I don't know which country can... Mediate a settlement of that sort, but uh, Ukraine could become a meat grinder for Russia, something akin to Afghanistan or even a bit worse. But um, that doesn't benefit the Ukrainian people either. To have a multi-year insurgency that will bleed that country dry, I think there are political types in the United States who don't absolutely don't care. They're perfectly willing to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. But that doesn't uh, benefit the people of Ukraine. It's not a moral stance for the United States. That's not the way out of this crisis.
1: I'm sure you've heard this criticism more times than I, that to do that, to allow Vladimir Putin to get away with invading a sovereign country and to essentially not stand up to that sort of aggression would be almost like what Chamberlain did in the run-up to World War II in appeasing Hitler at Munich. Do you think that uh, Putin is playing a Hitlerian role here and would kind of not standing up to Putin be a similar Chamberlain level of appeasement?
7: I am so weary of the constant invocations of the 1930s model. Um, This has probably come closer than the vast majority of examples the U.S. has cited over the decades. If you listen to U.S. officials, Saddam Hussein was the new Hitler. Slobodan Milosevic was the new Hitler. Ho Chi Minh was the new Hitler. Uh, they, just, they, they almost need to form a Hitler of the Month Club to trot out new villains. But this one certainly is closer to the model. Nevertheless, it's still significantly different. Russia is not Nazi Germany. Uh, for one thing, Nazi Germany was much, sm- much uh, stronger, both militarily and economically, than, than Russia. And we don't have to take the assumption that we must fight to the finish against Putin. There can be a compromise solution here. And we ought to look to that and powers who are not completely under Washington's control perhaps need to step out and try to mediate this conflict and bring it to conclusion.
1: Finally, sir, back in July, you wrote a piece saying that uh, Ukraine was a dangerous and unworthy ally for the United States. Now that uh, Vladimir Zelensky has sort of become an international rock star, at least in the West, and uh, people are uh, changing their social media profiles to the colors of the Ukrainian flag, I'm wondering if you can briefly explain why you felt that way? Why is Ukraine a dangerous and an unworthy ally for our country?
7: media, of course, portray Ukraine as this model ideal democracy. It is nothing of the sort. Uh, it is a quasi-democracy at best, a terribly corrupt government, and one that has more than its own share of highly authoritarian tendencies. So if Americans think that should the United States go to war on behalf of Ukraine, they're defending this wonderful, uh pristine democracy, this bastion of freedom. Uh, The picture is a lot murkier, a lot more mixed than that. Mm. And Ukraine did engage in actions, I think, that uh, antagonized Russia, brought this day closer. In some odd way, they, they actually played into Vladimir Putin's hands, into the hands of the hardliners in Moscow. And that's a tragedy. All right. Country uh, and potentially for us.
1: Ted Galen Carpenter, I appreciate the time this morning. It's always a treat to talk with you.
7: Thank you very much.
1: If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1 800 848 WABC. That's 1 800 848 9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, straight
0: ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Uh Morano.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight. Those are the Rolling Stones. Just so happens, Matt Blaze wearing a Rolling Stones t-shirt today. So you're a Rolling Stones fan.
12: Actually. I am, though I've never seen them in concert all these years. Really? It was the first rock t-shirt I ever owned. Wow. Back in the...
1: Is that that not very, cha- very, cha- very... Not shirt? this one, no, no, no. Oh, okay. Back
12: in the old days. Hmm. The white sleeves and...
1: All right. Well, fair enough. Hey, um, one of the things I'm struggling with today, you may hear this throughout the course of the next three hours, is on Friday I had to return the laptop that I use for everyday usage to my former employer. So my this radio station, WABC, they were kind enough to give me a laptop, state-of-the-art laptop. It's fast. It's got all sorts of stuff on it. But the problem, the, the, I use it only to do radio appearances. If I ever have to pre-tape an interview from home or if, uh, I, you know, my appearances on the, uh, the Cats at Night show, I only use it for radio appearances. So I really, um, I wanted another everyday laptop and they were kind enough to let me keep the one from my previous employer as long as I keep working on the Cats at Night, the, uh, excuse me, the Cats Roundtable because that's still heard on another radio station as well. So. I had had this same computer for the last at least eight years, and I was used to it. I could use it blindfolded. And now they give me this this state-of-the-art computer, which is very light, and it's very modern. It's very fast. I'll tell you, I feel like I'm lost. And, and I'm hoping that this gets better, and this is one of those things where like when you get a new mobile phone and uh, it takes you maybe a week or two of of using it and see right now the sounds playing. I don't know why there are sounds playing. Okay. There you go. I've I've muted the sound, but I'm hoping that um, after a week or two of using it, I'll get accustomed to it, but I still find it very uncomfortable, very awkward. Now it is nice in that it's lighter than my other computer and it's easier for me to lug around everywhere, but I really, miss my old computer that's a
10: mm, mm.
1: all right uh coming up next hour we are going to i think go live to ukraine um, our friend frank mckay is in ukraine we're going to check in with him find out what he's seeing on the ground there and i want you to answer this very simple question you know we spend a lot of time talking about aliens on this show but do you think extraterrestrials have actually visited the earth 808489222 Why or why not? Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Make sure you get your dog or cat spayed
13: or neutered.
0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight. Obviously, uh, we are keeping an eye on this situation in Ukraine. Someone who was there yesterday, actually, and is now calling us from Romania in order to give us a look and and an insight into what's happening there is a longtime friend of mine and a a nationally syndicated radio talk show host in his own right. He's been a guest on this show several times, Frank McKay. Frank, uh, where are we talking to you from right now?
8: I'm in uh, Yash, Romania, which is, uh, is second biggest city in Romania. It's spelled with an I in the beginning. I don't know how they get the pronunciation, but it's Yash. And uh, I I came I came back here. Um, I I kind of started here and went got into the Ukraine. I spent a good part of the day uh, in the Ukraine. I didn't go too far from the border. Uh, you know, maybe about uh, 15 miles out. Um,
1: And uh. Uh, we lost Frank there, Uh, I guess, in Eastern Europe. Those roaming charges do get you. We'll try and reconnect with him Uh, as we reconnect with him. I want to return to the question that I want to ask you. Now, we spend a lot of time talking about the idea of UAPs and UFOs on this program. Right. And there was an interesting article in The Hill. The Hill is um, a, a great newspaper. I, I really like it because they have a lot of current news, but they also have a lot of, um, you know, they, they have a lot of opinion pieces across the political spectrum. And they have this piece by uh, Christopher Mellon. And Christopher Mellon is uh, an interesting guy. but been trying to get him on the show. He served 20 years in the federal government. He's a registered independent. He served presidents and senators in both parties. He was a deputy assistant defense secretary for intelligence. He was a deputy assistant for security and information operations. He was the minority staff director of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. And he was a consultant and a contributor to the History Channel's nonfiction series, Unidentified, Inside America's UFO Investigation. And uh, we're going to. Uh, I want to link to this piece. It's on uh, Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash Morano fam. That's facebook.com slash M O R A N O fam. And he, he gets into a situation where he, the headline is, How Government Overclassification May Hide UFO Videos and Harm Our Security. And I agree with everything he says here. And he gets into how. The director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, recently acknowledged that excessive government classification undermines our national security. And she wrote the DNI in a letter to U.S. senators, quote, it's my view that deficiencies in the current classification system undermine our national security as well as critical democratic objectives by impeding our ability to share information in a timely manner. She also acknowledged that excessive classification damages the public's faith in government, and this is a quote from her, reduces the intelligence community's capacity to effectively support senior policymaker decision-making. I completely agree with her, and I completely agree with Christopher Mellon. I find... And I've said this for years, and I've covered this at length on the show. The government is classifying way too much stuff. There's way too much that's classified. And it's fed into this. Now, the public is always cynical, but it's fed into this cynicism in the public that the government is hiding everything about everything. So this, the word from the director of national intelligence it follows testimony from senior military officers who've complained to Congress regarding excessive classification. Uh, Fritz Schwartz wrote a great book on this, and I might, I might invite him on to uh, talk about this. But um, he gets into some detail about all the problems with over-classification. And her concerns are timely, and they're important. And Christopher Mellon writes in this piece that he used to remind his security and counterintelligence colleagues in the office of the Secretary of Defense that they didn't win the Cold War because they were better at protecting information. We won the Cold War because we were much better at moving and sharing information. So, meantime, the Department of Defense Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force issued new classification guidelines last year that classify as secret. That's a classification. The sorts of videos that the Department of Defense has acknowledged were unclassified, not declassified when they were released in 2017. This new blanket of secrecy is apparent from the DOD briefing guide on last year's unclassified UAP report. UAP if you're not up on this, that's the new name for UFO, which states except for except for its existence and the mission slash purpose, virtually everything else about the UAP TF is classified per the signed security classification guide. So. This is an interesting article I've linked to it, I want you to read it, and it goes through the 50 or 60 year history of the government classifying things and specifically on the issue of UAPs and UFOs. So I want you to take a look at it, but I spend all this time, you know, we have a lot of guests on, and I know some are out there, some are crazy, some are not, and some are very credible people. And we've heard from distinguished journalists, military people, writers, eyewitnesses who have said they've described various UAP encounters. So I figure if we're going to talk about this, why not give you an opportunity to give me your two cents? Do you believe, honestly, that UAPs, and all that means is unexplained aerial phenomenon, are extraterrestrial in nature? If not, what do you think they are? Is it a foreign government? Is it uh, a high advanced American military operation or is it something else? Number two, um, if you do believe that extraterrestrials have visited this planet, why? So have aliens, extraterrestrials, visited this planet? Yes, no, why? 80848 w a b c that's 800-848-9222. now getting back to matters on earth we have reconnected with uh, frank mckay who's joining us live from europe sorry we lost you there frank so uh you're in romania yeah. you're in romania now
8: yeah i'm in romania now in a, a a city called Yash, which is the second largest city i guess next to bucharest in romania and, uh, you know, I'm kind of made this my home base to get into the Ukraine. Yesterday, uh, and I, I did get in, I originally went to Moldova uh, the day before, right after I spoke to you, kind of, and uh, and, and I got uh, sent away uh, just on a, a car techni- uh, uh, technicality, and I was going to go this other route. So I ended up going uh, through Surat and uh, and spent a good part of the day in the Ukraine and what I started saying, and if I'm repeating myself, I, I was I was talking to no one there for a while. But uh, if I'm repeating myself, forgive me. But as I'm walking in, it, it just seemed like an endless sad
10: uh, sea of
8: of people. I I don't even know how to describe it. But it was me walking alone uh, against the crowd, and people were kind of at a standstill, and there was no conversation, um, or virtually no comment. Murmurs, you know, like uh, little murmurs and and weeping. And sobbing, and uh, and you know, to me, and I had nobody behind me walking that way, so everybody's kind of watching me. And I had a a small camera bag with me, of a you know, and as I'm walking in, and I mean, these people, and I think what hits home is these people look like, you know, they could easily be at the Staten Island Mall, you know, or a mall here on Long Island. Uh, They they very much look like us, and they, you know, you could mistake them for for Americans. And this first wave of, of refugees coming out are, are kind of either upper class. And by the way, this is not to minimize anything that they're going through, but either upper class or, uh, or middle class. Uh, but they're people that could somehow afford to get themselves uh, somewhere out of the Ukraine. And, uh, and I'm sure we're going to see a next wave of people that are much more downtrodden. But these folks, are, I mean, it, it was just it, it was it was heartbreaking, heart wrenching. When uh, when I got through, and you know, you don't even know what to say, and it's kind of a narrow passage here, and I, I you know I, I could I could maybe equate it to like like if you just went to a, a, a string of weeks of people you don't mm. know, and they all just lost somebody that was uh, was very close to them, but it lost them unexpectedly, you know, like quickly, and there's like a, a sense of shock in the people, and I'm walking by, and once I got past. I um I I just found I went behind this truck and I had to kind of compose myself for I don't know about 15 20 minutes it was just you know to me it was a very upsetting um you know situation and 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 it sounds ridiculous to say I mean I knew this wasn't going to be Disneyland I knew it wasn't going I knew it was going to be terribly sad but it, it sounds ridiculous but I underestimated uh the how sorrowful this whole situation is I mean it is a uh, it, it, it it is not scary on, on my part where I was anyway. Um, it, it wasn't scary to me and it's not scary around the border towns. Uh, it's, it's sad. I mean, it's very, it, it's, it's just sorrow. It's just like watching pure sorrow. And when I composed myself, I, I, you know, I went, went around and I spoke to everyone and, you know, half the people, you know, you know, put their hands up, like they don't want to say anything or they don't want to be on camera and others. Um, it's like a, a you know magnet I mean people want to come over and, and say something to you. A lot of people are self-conscious about their English. Um, you know I got in a couple of people's cars and they showed me you know some some different uh, little areas um, I, I had an invite to to take me to um it would have been a couple of hours away and i had I had a ride from a Romanian uh, woman that uh, that was going to be waiting for me about five or six hours from where I was, and there's no way I would have made it. But he was going to take me to a uh, uh, to a to a meeting of of what like is kind of an underground, you know they're they're not with the army but they're uh, you know, nationalists, and he was trying to explain it to me and and again I guess the language barrier was difficult for us to to, uh, to understand and I just it, it just sounded to me um, it, it sounded to me like it was going to be a long process getting there maybe more than two hours and then I got to get back and so forth. Uh, the, the other thing is. Um, Uh, someone offered to uh, to take me to where I could see uh, Russian tanks. And he said, you know, in broken English, he said, you know, he said, uh, you got to make sure they don't see you because they'll shoot at you. And I was kind of like, ah, you know, pass on that. You know, (laughs) cowboy tanks are are gone. And that didn't sound like a great uh, plan to me. But the issue with talking to everybody is is you're, you're talking to everybody and you don't know. Um, you, you don't know what, what's credible, what's uh, what's real. And there's one guy that I asked, and, and he was friendly with the cops there and he was friendly with the soldiers that uh, were at the border. But this one guy uh, showed me what he called grenades. And, you know, they didn't look like any grenades I, I ever saw. And he was in like a minivan. And it was uh, more, and they were professionally packaged, but it looked like almost plumbing, you know, like pipes. And so I don't know if they, they were pipe bombs or something. And what this guy described is he's part of like a relay team. He's giving these to someone, and he's getting citrus. He's getting citrus uh, back, and he's bringing that citrus, citrus I guess, you know, oranges and, and grapefruit or whatever. and then he's bringing that somewhere else, and he's getting, so the, the point I'm making with these things is, is uh, I guess it's heartening um, that, that there's some kind of resistance going on. And, you know, we just don't know what's true in the media. And to be honest with you, I I could probably find out further, but it would take a a tremendous amount more time and and a lot more risk to kind of get in there to see how real any of these resistance uh, situations are. But uh, it it is, uh, you know, again, I I thought coming in that that maybe it was just all hype and that it was just about to to fall. But um, and maybe that is the case. But there are people that are fighting and at one point a, a soldier walked over to me angrily uh but i i guess i i uh, he was t- taking some film and they got on it and he was pretty stern with me and he and he told me he pointed out a couple of areas and he said uh he, he said you'll you, you you'll be no friend right if uh well you'll have no friends uh this this and this and he pointed out a couple of things that that i shouldn't do and and he uh kind of put his finger pointed his finger at me like you know don't do it again you know and and, uh, one of the, the, the cars he pointed to was a, uh, was the guy that was next to the one showing me the, uh, the quote unquote grenades, uh, or what they were. And again, I, I'm not saying they're not grenades. I, I think in the language Barrett, uh, maybe like pipe bombs or something like that, but, you know, kind of professionally manufactured looking things. And, uh, uh anyway, I just yeah, I can go on. <laughs> uh, you know, I'll 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 yield to you, Frank.
1: We're talking with Frank McKay uh, calling in live from Europe, he was in Ukraine yesterday. Uh Frank, uh, j- just so folks understand what you're doing there, you mentioned ha- having a, a camera there. You, are you working on a documentary about this situation specifically?
8: Yeah, I, I intended to do so, and I I've got I've got a ton of footage. Uh, But, yeah, really, I'm, you know, reporting back and, you know, reporting back to, uh, you know, know, different stations and yourself. Uh, But, yeah, my intention is to is is to put out uh, a film of some type. And and the the most difficult part of it is, uh, you know, is it's finding people that want to talk, that speak English and uh, and, you know, we'll we'll kind of go on record. Uh, most people will say something. You know, they'll they'll be there. The the young men, uh, you know, are, are less likely to talk. Um, but yes, to answer your question, yes, I, I plan on, uh, you know, at least shooting the film, and we'll we'll see where it goes from there. But I'm really kind of investigating what's going on here, and I'm I'm seeing what the um, what we're getting from media, and and how that differs from from me. And to be honest with you, I haven't been following uh, the American media on it at all i mean people send me little snippets but the the word over here and i you know I've spoken to people in the romanian um, military and folks that are close to the situation and people uh, you know from from ukraine and uh, former ukrainian mi- military and and from what everyone's saying is that all eyes are on odessa uh, a city in the ukraine and they're they're expecting it to fall in in like a, a week week and a half and the the thought and I don't know if this came out of, like, Romanian government or, or Romanian media, uh, because everyone kind of seems to say the same thing, that if Odessa falls, that Putin will next go into a Modova. Uh, it's not NATO and it's not, um, you know, it's not protected in that sense. And he, he probably has some rationalization that would happen. So uh, if that's basically what people hear. On the ground, and I don't mean you know ten people. I, I mean I'm getting this from thirty people, forty people. So again, it could be a uniform message mm. coming from from government or the uh, the media sources here. But all eyes where where I am, and and even on the Ukrainian side, uh, Odessa is uh, is a big uh, conversation, a point of conversation because uh, it, they they feel the people would just you know the the soldiers would uh, march on to Moldova from there. So I don't know if that's new from what you're hearing but that's
1: that's all the all the talk here. Got it. Well, no Frank, uh definitely appreciate the update. Uh let's stay in touch while you're while you're out there and please stay safe. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Frank McKay. Uh you can hear him regularly on all sorts of radio stations around the country and uh he's kind enough to join us from Europe. He was in Ukraine yesterday. Uh want to get back to this UAP issue. Uh, There's this opinion piece in The Hill by a former assistant uh, secretary of state or deputy secretary of state for intelligence and a leader in the intelligence community, both in the executive branch and in the Senate. And he talks about how excessive classification is contrary to the values of a democratic society and should be opposed as a matter of principle. However, he says there are also pragmatic reasons to raise this issue. And he's approaching the UAP topic as a member of two serious groups of scientific researchers, the Galileo Project and the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies. So I want everybody listening to call me and answer the simple question. Do you think that extraterrestrials have been to this planet? Yes or no and why? Eight hundred eight four eight wabc That's 800 We'll continue with your calls straight ahead.
0: WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Okay, so guitarra.
14: Okay, so um, let's start with this. What's what's your
3: name? Q-T. Where you going? Where you going with it? My wallet in El Segundo. Left my wallet in El Segundo. Left my wallet in El Segundo. I got it kid. I got got to get it. I left my wallet in El Segundo. My wallet in El Segundo. Left my wallet in El Segundo. I got it kid. I got got to get
10: it. This
1: is the other side way. of Midnight. Uh, the classic song I left my wallet in El Segundo. Uh, this song is over 30 years old, but I'll tell you, it's still timeless. It's still just as relevant today, just as meaningful, just as catchy as it was when it was released over three decades ago. Talking about this piece um, that Christopher Mellon wrote in The Hill regarding overclassification and UAPs. And I'm just curious. You know, we've spent a lot of time talking about aliens on this show and extraterrestrials and UAPs. And based on whatever you've heard on this show or other shows or your own independent research or your own gut instinct, do you think that aliens have actually been to this planet? Yes, no, why, or why not? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Eric is in Manhattan. Hello, Eric.
15: Hey, Hey, Frank. I would lean towards yes because I mean, they um, they're only in all these ancient paintings and drawings and and that kind of thing. Unless that's all fake, I would like five minutes in the Vatican basement, you know, just to look at everything. But the, I think the incredible secret. I think the the there's an incredible secret being kept. And I think what it is, I don't think they're from from other planets. I think well, unless they're they're from other planets, um, the, they're from other lands. They're from here. Well, I think that's what the big secret is. That's that's. What do you mean they're from
1: from here? Extraterrestrial like from uh, Extraterrestrial. under the ocean or something?
15: Well, could be. Like the word extraterrestrials, right in there, other land, extra lands, like because technically, it's like the sun is really named Saul. We're on Terra, so when you say extraterrestrial, I forgot how it literally translates. It's either extra lands from other lands, you know. So there, that's that's the big secret where they're from. So if they if what, they happen,
1: what about people from other planets? You don't buy that.
15: I I do, but what's what define planet? Well, let's say, let's say other other lands that we haven't seen, Frank, other lands that we haven't seen here down on our, our down on the same surface, but not from here.
1: Well, uh, help me out here. I'm not sure I understand what you're driving at. Exactly. <laughs>
15: there, because um, have you ever you remember the theory of lost continents? And have you ever heard that? Yeah, so, like, like a, Atlantis in and so of, forth. Journey to the center of the earth. Journey sure. to this. Journey to that. Sure. They don't. They don't make those movies anymore, do they? they well, they, did, they did. do a, re-
1: a journey to the center of the earth recently.
15: That was like ten, like more than ten years ago. The Brendan Fraser movie. Yeah, yeah. You know, they kind of hinted at it in in one of the, in the Aquaman movie, but that's around it. They kind of dance around it. You know what I mean?
10: So, but,
1: well, um, and fair enough, I, Eric. Thank you. Do you think aliens have visited this planet? Yes. No. Why? Why not? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Ted is in Forest Hills. Hello there, Ted.
5: The answer is not no. The answer is heck no. And the reason is there is nothing that can travel between the stars. If they were going to go at a speed of light, they hit a few dust particles, their ship would disintegrate. And why would they want to come here if they're that advanced to be able to travel between the stars? And also, at any time, possibly not recently, but any time, not in the current few months, there's 6,000 airliners in the air. Do any of the pilots see? I have 25 years as a pilot. I never saw, I only saw the plane ahead of me. I never saw anything spooky.
1: All right. Well, Ted, uh, point taken. 800-848-WABC. So far, that's one sort of yes and one resounding no. What do you think? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Coming up. In about an hour, we're going to talk with Rob Astorino. He's a Republican running for governor. Uh, we're aiming to talk with all the candidates for governor, and Democrat, Republican, Independent, Third Party, and that uh, Rob Astorino is the next in our gubernatorial candidates series. But for now, we have one, two, three, four, five open lines. Do you think aliens have been to this planet? Yes, no, why, why not? 800-848-WABC. What do you think, Jay?
11: Resounding, yes, Frank, but technology has taken over. We have done it to ourselves, as in 2001, the Space Odyssey. Remember the computer calling you, Frank?
16: Right. How? Well,
11: I, I, I agree. I think, I think, as in the movie, as anyone's related to seeing the movie, I just believe a lot of that has come true. Fruition. Um, we know everything. We know the the grocery store knows everything I've ever bought and sends me coupons. Mm. And the competition does also. So they know everything about me, everything I've ever done, and wherever I've ever been. The man knows every ticket that I ever got. It's all computerized. Just on and on and on. Everything about my whole life has been downloaded.
1: All right. But I I guess I'm – and I've seen – uh, 2001, and I know the computer how, and, uh, you know, his uh, becoming more and more aware with artificial intelligence, but I guess I'm not sure how that really relates to my question in terms of whether or not aliens have been here or not.
11: I kind of, I kind of let that open-ended. You're right. I really have. But uh, we the technology that we've done to ourselves, they're not letting us know everything that's going on over in Europe. They didn't do it in World War II when my parents lived on Long Island. The Germans were right off the coast, and they, they're not going to tell us everything. It's, it's they can't. So, technology's just taken over completely. It has.
1: All right. Well, uh, thank you, Jay. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Mario in Brooklyn. What do you think?
17: I absolutely believe that. Uh, Aliens have visited this earth for thousands of years, just not recently. As you can recall, Charles Lindbergh, when he tra- in his travels, he had claimed to have seen uh, a UAP. And when he came back to the States, he was told to uh, keep it on the wraps. So just based on all the ancient civilizations and all the... the the various uh, technologies they might have had, you know, and building their civilizations. And I I also believe that they're subterranean civilizations where the uh, USO's uh, also um, residing, if you will, you know. So basically, I believe they've been around. And even the Pope believes that – UAPs and aliens exist. And he said, if they do exist, they must be a Christian, you know? (laughs) Well, thank you you for your time. Thank you,
1: Mario. What do you think? 800-848- WABC. This is a judgment-free zone. What do you think? Bill is in Oakland. Hello, Bill.
12: Hi, Frank. Yes, um, this might not be really uh, the answer you're looking for, but I think that sometime in the future we develop time travel and the sightings we see uh, are possibly ourselves.
1: You know it's so funny that you say that because there was an article in space.com which posited that same theory and there's more and more very credible people, academics, scientists that are starting to say that very same thing and I don't want I don't want to misquote them, but I think Steve Cates, Dr. Sky, who's a very grounded reasonable guy, he brought up that same theory in one of our recent conversations.
12: Yeah, I think that um, also it could be possible that we travel to other planets, say we colonize Mars, and um, due to the fact that we have the time travel, even though uh, we can come back to visit this, this time that we're living in now, um, we are technically, I guess you could say, aliens from other planets since we colonize those in the future. So so uh,
1: take me through the, the theory. So uh, in the future, Earth has colonized, colonized other planets, whether it's Mars or somewhere else. And then few, humans from whatever, hundreds of years in the future, maybe even thousands of years in the future, who are now living on Mars or other external planets, they've come back not only back in time, but back in space. Correct. Interesting. Correct. Interesting. Well, look, I, hey, I've heard stranger things, uh, that's for sure. Thank you, Bill. 800 wabc Dan is in Erie, Pennsylvania. Hello, Dan.
18: Hi. Uh, I have a tendency to believe it, mainly because there have been at least 10,000 reports worldwide over the years of people seeing aliens and things like that. If just one, just one person it's telling the truth and we can't assume everybody's lying. Uh, it kind of adds credibility to, uh, the fact that they are here. Also, uh, you, you know, like I said, I've never seen one, but I, I've been out on, when I was in the military, we had to go out on a chase of unidentified objects, but it was pretty hush up. Uh, and that was like 50 years ago. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I have a tendency to believe it. Yeah, I. I as far as the time travel and things like that goes, they say that the distance is too far. Well, it's too far as we know it because we don't know mm-hmm. what uh, the technology that they have. Maybe they do have a, a a beam transportation where they can beam people up, beam people down. You know, disintegrate the molecules and reassemble them. Uh, Uh, 100,000 million miles away or something like that. Who knows? I don't know. And I don't think we have the the knowledge of what is possible in the future.
1: Right. Well, that's exactly right, Dan. And, Dan, thanks for the call. And that least convincing call that I've taken in the last 10 minutes is from Ted in Forest Hills, who said, uh, essentially, uh, travel between the stars at light speed or faster than light speed is not possible. I came across a history book written in the uh, early 1940s recently, and it describes the moon. And it, and it's a, basically history and science. It's an old book. It's from the early 40s. And it says, of course, travel between the Earth and the moon is impossible. Now, that was 28 years or 27 years before Americans landed on the moon. Now, uh, what Ted says might be true of any science we understand today, but you mean to tell me hundreds of years from now, thousands of years from now, or some civilization that's thousands of light years away hasn't already developed that sort of technology to control and harness incredible energies? Uh, That strikes me as a little naive,
19: to be honest. 800-848-9222.
1: 800 848 Simon in Brooklyn, what do you think?
19: Yeah, I think, thank you. How are you doing? I, 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 I read about, I read about um, aliens, before, you know, when, when God destroyed the world with Noah. So at that time, they had a lot of technology. And I think, um, which I'm hearing from uh, reliable sources, that a lot of them, you know, a lot of them had technology, spaceships, and a lot of them went to another, you know, right before the flood so they went to other universes to protect themselves
1: so you think so the 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 animals that were uh, that were on the planet and the people that were on the planet before noah's ark and the great flood went to other planets
19: yeah there were and also people were very tall was it, you know that giant animals it was the world was you know they they had palms those days they didn't have fingers was a whole different mindset, and they were very big in technology. So in that time, you know, if you read the Bible, they, a lot of them, they had such, they had, they, they had amazing technology, and a lot of them um, left the planet, and, they, and, and that's the leftovers, what we have from then. Well, it so is today. interesting,
1: Simon, and if you read the book of Genesis, and thanks for the call, the book of Genesis, chapter 6, they describe something called Nephilim. And depending on the translation, uh, Nephilim could mean giants, it could mean monsters, but it describes Nephilim as sons of God that that were giants. And you think, look, I'm not a guy that takes the Old Testament literally. I think the New Testament, at least the four Gospels, that's the actual word of God, whereas the Old Testament is more the inspired word. Of God. So I don't read too closely what's in the Old Testament, but there are a lot of people, especially a lot of Jewish uh, listeners that do. So if you read Genesis chapter six, when they describe Nephilim, what became of those giants? What became of those sons of God? This is long before Jesus. What became of the Nephilim? Are they the kind of giants that uh, Simon is describing? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Sherman is in Manhattan. Hello, Sherman.
20: Hey, Frank. How are you tonight? Uh, you know, I, I'm honestly astonished that all these grown adults that are calling in, and, and they obviously have no uh, idea. You know, if you look up, at the, the universe is, uh, for the most part, endless. I mean, it's uh, it's It's infinite. So if something is infinite, that means it also has infinite potential. Potential for what? For life. I mean, you just had the best Navy uh, pilots uh, and and sailors, uh, the United States Navy, the best eyewitnesses you can get. Okay? And they're out there in the middle of the ocean, broad daylight. Okay? And they have UFOs buzzing around them for the whole day. It's all documented. It's all – if everybody would – Continue to listen to the Frank Marano show, but also go to YouTube and just punch in the Navy uh, witnessing uh, UFOs hovering right around. And one of them was about 30 or 50 feet away on radar, dove into the water. And you can hear uh, the sailors on board of the ship all gasp. You can hear them clutching their pearls, so to speak. I mean, they were all astonished. So you got uh, uh, hundreds of people. That witness something, uh, and the best rational minds you can get. So, you know, and I'd like you to do this, Frank. This would be great for your show. Uh, you, Any time, go to Unsolved Mysteries. There's a case and there's a UFO situation where out, out in Pennsylvania, and these people are still alive. I think it was in the early 80s or late 70s, a UFO crash out in Pennsylvania somewhere. And some of these people, volunteered, firefighters, and they ran out to the scene. They didn't know what it was. And the, the, the army came and, and took this UFO away. And they, you know, they're still baffled as to what it was. They said it looked like it was shaped like an acorn, it was about the size of a small car. Yeah, I, I think you're talking about was, the UFOs.
1: Hexburg UFO incident, which was back in the 60s, not the 80s. No, I don't think is that. You sure was was it in Pennsylvania? Yes, Kexburg Kecks, is in uh, Pennsylvania. It was um it really interesting. We will do a future show on this, but it fits the kind of description that you are uh, that you're talking about. 848 WABC. That other Tom from the Bronx. Hello.
13: Hey, what's going on?
1: You tell me, pal.
13: Okay, I I had to make sure I was the right one because I know there's other one. I'm the Fugazy Tom. Yeah, I think okay. we're now up to three Toms. Oh, okay. Well, I'll be the fair. Okay. You talk about the Nephilim in the Bible, right? Okay. Another school of thought is that when Satan got kicked out of heaven, 200 angels or so went with him. He had a crew. They all got kicked out. They got kicked out to the earth. So when the creators start made man and they start multiplying, these guys, they were big. They were giants and they were very smart okay and um they started getting with the daughters of the human beings so god didn't like that but either they were done off by the flood or they went with satan down under to um hell okay so that that's another school of thought on and definitely they were giants but they were very smart because they had been up with satan in heaven but they got kicked out and god uh, did, did the world in? They got done in with them, or they fled with Satan down to the down to hell?
1: Well, so. I, 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 we'll never know, I suppose, Tom. Right? Or maybe one day we will. Paul's on Staten Island. Hello, Paul.
13: Hey, good morning,
14: Frank. Morning, dear. Good morning. <laughs> I'm on my way to work. Don't mind me. <laughs> I had a shift change, but uh, somewhere in the world, I actually forget there are mine shafts that are over ten thousand years old and. They are perfectly cut, and at the time, man did not have the necessary tools to perfectly cut these mine shafts. That's one reason to think that they've been here already. And I mean, how how, how could you make mine shafts miles deep without the necessary tools of the from from there, ten, tens of thousands of years ago? I don't remember the country it was in. I forget where it was, but they're perfectly cut mine shafts. I was watching it a while ago, and I don't remember where it was. Yeah, I'll have to look also, into that. Uh, yeah, it's it's. I just don't remember. I think it, was, it might have been mine country, actually. I'm I'm not too sure. But uh, what the last call was saying about the Nephilim, uh, I remember learning about that as well. That the giants actually were fallen angels. Yeah. yeah and well, they've actually. Uh, they found skeletons, giant skeletons too, that coincide with the time.
1: Yeah, see that I have not heard uh, the finding of the of the uh, of the giant skeletons. But and thanks for the call, Paul. It all depends on what uh, what translation of the Book of of uh, Genesis that you read, uh, because if you read the uh, King, King James version, it says. Um, you know, it says. I'll tell you exactly what it says. Let me pull it up here so that I'm not doing this from memory. Uh, maybe it's not chapter six. I think I thought I always thought it was Genesis chapter six. Well, I, I will find it. But anyway, um, the the it, it is an interesting interesting thing to look at. Uh, oh, it's chapter three. Okay, Je- I'll, I'll look it up. I'll find it. Uh, meantime, Bobby is on Center Reach, Long Island. Hello, Bobby.
14: Good morning, Frank. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Good. I don't know as much of this as you do, okay? But I do believe that whatever you want to call the aliens have been here. They've been coming here for millions of years, and and they say some of the things like uh, what is this, headstone and the pyramids, you know, and whether that's been right settled or not. But what I think is they've been coming here for the last few hundred years because of all the chaos going on in the world. That's why they haven't come down and and shown themselves like they had billions of years ago.
1: Hmm. Hmm. So you think millions of years ago that some of these things that various ancient mythologies report about could have been extraterrestrial in nature?
14: Oh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. I
1: I buy that. I buy it. And that's a big part of the ancient alien hypothesis, uh, Bobby. And uh, the show on the History Channel has done some great work on that that respect. Bobby, thanks for the call. I I did manage to pull it up. It was Genesis chapter 6. So this is what Genesis 6 verse 4 says. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans who bore children to them. So think of what that says. And this is the King James Version. But think of what that says, that the sons of God actually mated with human women. And then it says these were the heroes that were of old warriors of renown. And they're mentioned again in the book of Numbers as uh, the Israelites prepared to enter the land of Canaan. Um, and then they're mentioned briefly in the book of Ezekiel, the fallen mighty men, although it doesn't use the word Nephilim. Let me take one more call on this, and then we'll move on to some other issues as well. Eight hundred eight four eight wabc Tommy is in Brooklyn. Hello, Tommy.
12: Hey, what's up, Frank? Oh, uh, yeah, they've definitely been coming here. You know, like, like, we're the only people out here. Like, there's nothing else.
1: Why do you, I agree with you, Tommy. But why do you think... There's so much skepticism, and there's so much reluctance from people to buy that that you, extraterrestrials are are regular visitors to this planet.
14: Because not everybody sees them, right? Right. Well, it could hey, be. Uh, tell 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 Paul to pull it, take off his tinfoil hat, too. There you go.
1: There you go. There you go. <laughs> Thank you, Tommy. Uh, We'll take some more calls in a minute. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 77 WABC.
1: I, um, well, this was his first big solo hit, I believe, uh, for the life of me, I can't remember what band uh, George Harrison was in before he went solo. It was, it was something big, I can't remember, but it was it was big for a time. They certainly had a heyday, but certainly a uh, an incredibly talented artist, if ever there was one. Hey, you know what I just um, you, you know what I took note of at uh, during the top of the hour news at two a.m. So I see Curtis Slewa in the kitchen. Now, one, why is Curtis Slewa still here? You'd think Curtis has been on the air for 20 hours this weekend. He's done, he's been on the air this weekend more hours than I've been awake, doing solo shows, doing shows with partners, doing shows about shows, doing all sorts of shows. Good shows, good shows. But he's still here. So anyway, but that's fine. So I see him in the uh, kitchen. And he's uh, over by the. the we have a, a really robust snack selection here at the radio station, for which I'm incredibly grateful. Most really? most radio stations you you work at and they don't have they don't they don't have anything. Here it's like every day it's a smorgasbord. You just never know what you're going to get. So I see Curtis in the kitchen, and first he's telling talking about Ted Galen Carpenter. He says, "Oh, that guy was really interesting." And with Curtis, you never know if he's being If he's being sincere, if he's being facetious. And uh, it turned out he was being sincere. And so they have these devices that distribute snacks. And there's um, granola in one. There's M&M's in one. There's um, oatmeal in another. Dry oatmeal. There's, uh, you know, all sorts of things. And there's one that has frosted mini-wheats. Okay? Now, the way these devices work is it's picture a vending machine that you used to put the coins in and then you'd turn it, you put the coin in and then out comes your candy, right? Picture that only without the coin, you turn a knob and you put your bowl underneath the opening where the vending machine is. And then out comes your, your snack and it's, it's great. It's it's really great. So the the thing that's so great about it is it's sanitary, right? So you put your bowl, You turn turn the knob, open the little flap there, and out comes your trail mix or your M and M's or your raisins or whatever you want to snack on. But I'm looking at Curtis as he's talking to me, and I'm trying not to let this distract me because I only have the 77 seconds of news that Frank Diaz does to fill my coffee and run back here. And I'm looking at Curtis in this in front of this frosted mini wheat contraption, and sure enough. Curtis, who hasn't washed his hands since Gerald Ford was president, he sticks both of his grimy, disgusting, filthy hands into the top of the frosted mini-wheats contraption. He removes the lid of this, sticks his filthy, grimy, germ-ridden, cat-petting hands into the top of this thing, scoops out. The f- frosted mini wheats doesn't put it in the bowl. I think he just shoves them in his mouth. And I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at Crystal who who does some of the video work here. And I'm looking. I'm saying, did you see what I just saw? And she was, she was frightened. She was frightened. She was literally startled. She was taken quite aback. I don't think she wanted to say anything negative about Curtis. I said, don't be scared. But I mean, I'm a little scared too. I was trying to reassure her, and she said, oh, I just scare easily. I said, I don't blame you. Now, I gotta. I understand if you see a bowl of chips or something, what are you going to do? You stick your hand in the bowl of chips. If there's no serving spoon or something, you stick your hand in the bowl of chips. But when you have that option of just twisting this knob and not having to stick your hands in the same frosted mini wheats that everybody else is eating, why would you do that? Now, again, I'm not a germaphobe at all. I don't wear a mask. You know, I'm not washing my hands six times a day. But there's just something about seeing Curtis stick his filthy, grimy hands in those m- m- frosted mini wheat.
2: Outrageous.
1: I, I Look, I'm not a frosted mini wheat guy, but I am crossing that snack right off the list of uh, snacks that uh, that I will be indulging upon. And, this
2: guy is a menace to society.
1: Well, I wouldn't go that far, Rita, but. It's certainly, it's worth noting. I mean, do, are we at the point where we need to put on a signage in there that says, please do not stick your hands into the top of the contraption, the snack contraption? I don't know. I have a question for you. Yes, Molly.
11: So what do you think Congratulations. That... <laughs> what do you think the... Uh, you're talking about the, the, the cultures on Curtis's hands, but I, I'm busy thinking about whatever bacteria
1: was grown on those eggs you were eating last week. Yeah, well, uh, I guess we'll never know, right? I I I just
11: feel like maybe you should pick... You should be concerned about both, not one or the other.
1: No, no. The difference is (laughs) I'm not hurting anybody else by eating food that's in the refrigerator.
10: True, true. Curtis
1: is putting everybody that indulges in those frosted mini-wheats in jeopardy. By the way, what is that that wine you got there?
11: It's actually not wine. This is... uh, a bottle of uh, Bombay Sapphire gin that Rita Cosby got for my birthday.
1: Do you drink Bombay Sapphire gin?
11: I. She asked me what I was feeling like the day before, and came in the next day with a bottle of gin. So this oh, was m- nice. more like a request than anything. Oh, else. that's I feel nice. weird.
1: I d- um, I drink Bombay Sapphire as well. So hopefully you'll share that with us. Probably not. Well, well you're hey, gonna take a shot. So anyway, um, I uh, over the weekend I did something that I have not done much of in the last 3 months which is my wife and I watched a motion picture we saw the motion picture Don't Look Up now this is on Netflix it's um it's a it's sort of a black comedy uh, a, it's an apocalyptic black comedy and i had very low expectations of this film i uh, my sister told me she didn't like it uh, All sorts of people. I don't remember almost anybody telling me they liked it. And that is the best thing for a film. If you could go in with low expectations, that is the absolute best thing. Because then it's easy for a film to exceed them. So basically what this film is about, I'm not going to give you too much away, but it's got a great cast. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, Meryl Streep. Kate Blanchett, Ariana Grande, uh, Timothy Chalamet, Ron Perlman, Jonah Hill, Rob Morgan. And basically, this film is a satire of um, how in society, in the political society that we're in, the polarized political environment, the social media environment we're in, that people won't take science seriously. It could be an allegory for global warming. I guess it could also be an allegory for COVID. I really enjoyed it. One, I thought the film was very funny. I thought there were many different aspects of it that were very true. I mean, look, they they hit you over the head a little bit with a certain agenda, and it's clear th- the agenda, what it is, right? It's not subtle points that the film is making, but I still managed to find it entertaining. And my wife said, uh, look, Leonardo DiCaprio is one of the biggest stars in the world, But she loved it. I really liked it. I'm not going to go so far as to say I loved it, but um, uh, I really liked it. And she said, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio was so good in that film that she said to me, I forgot that that was Leonardo DiCaprio. I was so lost in the character that he was playing that I was just so taken in by it. And I really, I thought it was funny. I thought it was well done. I think it's a little silly. It's a little over the top. If you're, if you're going to be offended by political bias in a film, don't watch it. If you don't mind a little political bias, I think you're going to enjoy it. It's really, I enjoyed it. I got quite a kick out of it. And the, the satire of Mika Brzezinski in this film is just so funny. Played by Kate Blanchett. She's great in it. it it's really terrific in that respect. Commendations coming up in mere seconds. Rob Astorino. In 30 minutes. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Until next hour, keep asking questions.
0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
1: everyone this is the other side of midnight it's monday morning there are some people that work their whole lives to appear on the list of names that i am about to read to you maybe they did something heroic maybe they led a life of virtue and accomplishment maybe they did something that was an artistic accomplishment par excellence but all one thing that all of the next 10 or 11 people that I have to bring to your attention have in common is that they are all commendable.
0: The Other Side of Midnight presents Commendations.
1: Let me first begin with a commendation for Colorado gubernatorial candidate Danielle
12: Neuschwanger.
1: Now, first of all, I almost want to just give her a commendation for having the name Danielle Neuschwanger. How cool of a name is that? I don't know if that's a married name or a maiden name, or whatever the case may be. But she was um, she went to CPAC, like a lot of Republicans did, and she was on her return flight home from Orlando to Colorado. And during the flight to Denver, a male passenger lost consciousness and collapsed in the aisle. So immediately, Danielle Neuschwanger jumps into action, commanding passengers to clear the way. She calls for Southwest staff to retrieve the med kit. She's a trained EMT, this woman, which I did not know. She's FEMA certified, and she's a previous instructor to mass casualty events. And her quick thinking rendered aid to this fella in need, and her background helped to curb all sorts of other additional chaos as two passengers began fighting during the incident. Imagine that. A guy passes out on an airplane and two passengers take it upon themselves to start fighting at that point. So because of her ability to delegate control, a trained Southwest flight attendant was able to step away to calm these passengers down while Neuschwanger worked with other staff to relay communication back to the ground crews and to revive the passengers. So there's photographic evidence of this. There's eyewitnesses to this. I I don't know anything about this woman. I've never heard of her before. I don't know if she's the best gubernatorial candidate in the world or the worst. But this is this is an example of real leadership. See, leadership is not running on Twitter and saying something hyperbolic that is going to – little music, please, Matt. Thank you uh, – that's going to get retweets and likes. Leadership is when there are times of crisis, times of uncertainty, rushing to the occasion. And I commend – Danielle Neuschwanger, for her leadership on this one. I also want to commend Jeremy Murphy. Now, Jeremy Murphy's been a great guest on this show. He was on the show twice. And I'm going to try and have him back this week. And uh, his new book is out. It's called F-Off, Chloe, Surviving the OMGs and FMLs in Your Media Career. This book might be the best book I've ever read. It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. It's, It's really, it's almost a long pamphlet. But it is so on the money in terms of throwing shade at Generation Z in the workplace. It's hilarious. It's snarky, but it's hilarious. It's great. But the real reason I'm commending Jeremy is because he threw a book party on Tuesday and was kind enough to invite me. This book party was open bar. Open bar in an era where you don't see a lot of open bars uh book parties but in addition to being open bar it was top shelf open bar we're not talking well vodka and well bourbon and well gin um you order a a a, a, a bourbon and uh you order a bourbon and you get jim beam no this was top shelf they had stoli elite at this thing which is my favorite vodka and it was all complimentary it was great so, Jeremy Murphy, I commend you not only for your new book, but for inviting me to this book party and for having it be top shelf open bar. Uh, my wife and I are in the midst of planning a party, a, you know, small family party. And she said, all right, well, we'll do beer, wine and soda. I said, honey, I don't care if there's no food at this thing. We have to go full open bar. I said, you've met my family. You, you know the level of drinker you're dealing with here, right? And she ultimately rolled her eyes at the additional expense and said, all right, I guess I guess we do have to do that. Now, I also want to give accommodation to James Earl Jones. There's a, a new Broadway theater that is going to be named for uh, James Earl Jones, the Schubert Organization's Court Theater on Broadway, officially being renamed after James Earl Jones. Fulfilling a promise by the theater giant to honor a black artist in such a way. Now, I don't think they should be renaming theaters for James Earl Jones because he's black. They should be renaming theaters for James Earl Jones because he's one of the greatest actors of all time. One, has one of the greatest voices of all time. Is one of the most sought-after narrators of all time. I'm such a huge fan of James Earl Jones. I regret the fact that... Um, that I've never met him, and I've never gotten an opportunity to interview him, and I hope I am able to interview him one day. But he's appeared in 21 Broadway productions. He's appeared in countless films. He's been a, a narrator on everything from CNN to the uh, New Jersey Bell Yellow Pages. One of the most iconic voices. Who else can be Darth Vader and Terrence Mann? He was the great white. He was in that film, uh, The Great White Hope, which he won. Um, an Oscar for he's won a Grammy he's won an Oscar he's won a Tony the guy is incredible and I can't think of a more worthy recipient of having a Broadway theater renamed for him than James Earl Jones so congratulations to you James Earl Jones I am uh, congratulating you not only on getting this theater name for you but on your commendation I want to give a commendation to Brian Peroni and the guys over at Arthur Avenue Pizza I'd say I-, I, I love this guy I absolutely love this guy. Brian Peroni came in here, and he brought us free frozen pizza from Arthur Avenue Pizza. My wife and I tried this pizza. It was some of the best frozen pizza that I've ever had. I'm not really a frozen pizza guy. It doesn't taste like frozen pizza. It tastes like real pizza. And then uh, John Katsimatidis tells me that he and Margot tried it, and they loved it. So the pizza was great, but then... Brian is kind enough to invite me to Rayo's. He's got a table at Rayo's four times a year, and he wasted one of these invites on me and paid. So, I mean, you talk about a great guy, and uh, Brian Peroni fits my embodiment of everything that it takes to get a commendation. Bring pizza, make the pizza good, invite me to Rayo's, pay. That is four for four in my book. Thank you, Brian Peroni. Commendations to you. I want to give a commendation to an Armenian man uh, named Roman Sahadrian. And unfortunately, the article was cut off. So give me a minute and I will tell you exactly why Roman Sahadrian is getting a commendation. Uh, He's an Armenian gentleman and he has just set a world record record for doing pull-ups from a flying helicopter. This is an amazing thing. He performed 23 pull-ups in one minute from a flying helicopter. Now, I think I can maybe do one-third of one pull-up. Maybe. On a good day. On a good, like a super good day, if I take some of Sid Rosenberg's steroids, maybe I can work my way up to three-quarters of one pull-up. This guy not only does 23 pull-ups, he does it from a flying helicopter in one minute. 23 pull-ups from a flying helicopter, meaning he's hanging off a flying helicopter doing pull-ups. This is one of the most phenomenal feats of athleticism I have ever seen. There's video of this guy, and apparently he holds other gymnastic records as well. This guy has a lot of gumption. And uh, my hat's off to him. If doing twenty-three pull-ups from a flying airplane doesn't get you a commendation, then nothing nothing does. I want to commend the New York City anonymous Good Samaritan who found a wallet with four thousand dollars in it in Times Square and returned it to its owner. So a New York City Good Samaritan discovered a wallet containing thousands of dollars and got it back to its rightful owner. So a native of Honduras, Eduardo Martinez, was walking through Times Square and he dropped his wallet, which contained $4,000 cash along with other standard wallet items. So upon realizing what had transpired, he returned to the crowded area. And he was approached by two police officers. They explained that they'd been given a wallet by an unnamed woman who had been commuting to work at the same time as Martinez. And sure enough, after verifying his ID, the cops reunited this fellow with his money. And incredibly, it had all of his contents in it, including $4,000. So Martinez said in Spanish that he's grateful to the cops and to the woman who returned it to him, adding that their act of kindness proves that there are still honest people in this world. I think that is absolutely true. I think there are still honest people in this world. I just wish I had this woman's name that I could give her a proper commendation. I'll tell you two people's name who I do have, and that is Bridget and Robert Guzzi. Bridget and Robert Guzzi are great people, uh, they're friends of mine and big listeners to this show. And it turns out, Robert's... They live in Florida. But Robert's mother moved out of her house recently. And she had a grandfather clock. So they asked, do you want this grandfather clock? So, you know, I'm a sucker for nostalgic items like this. And, I, you know, we said, of course. So they had... Robert's brother, as his last act before moving to Florida, his brother Paul, deliver this grandfather clock to our house on Saturday. And i got to tell you, this thing looks great. It it really brings the room together. And at their own expense, they're having a grandfather clock repair person come to our house and set it up with all the clock accoutrements and everything. So we will have a working... Grandfather clock thank you thanks to Bridget and Robert Guzzi and to Robert's brother Paul big thank you to everybody involved i want to commend Miro Latenzio Sai from Sao Paulo Brazil who at 5 years old is the youngest person ever believed to have discovered an asteroid imagine this what were you doing at 5 years old I think I was still sort of getting the hang of um, potty training. But this five-year-old Brazilian boy has been recognized as the youngest person in the world to identify an asteroid. In total, there were 15 of these asteroids that this boy discovered that have already been confirmed by NASA. He's always been interested in astronomy and science, and this caught the attention of his parents And during the quarantine, they saw an advertisement for a project to hunt for asteroids at at an international initiative officially called the International Astronomical Research Collaboration. And as part of this, he did some asteroid hunting and has discovered all these asteroids. I think that is really neat. I would be so proud of my son if uh, he discovered an asteroid at any age, let alone at five years old. I want to give a commendation to Iceland. Uh, a new study has ranked Iceland number one in terms of gender equality. That's nice. Very nice. Congratulations to you, Iceland. I was just having a one Saturday about Iceland. And uh, I was kind of done with the conversation, but then she brought out pictures. I didn't need to see pictures, but I didn't want to look rude. You know, I didn't look like I was not interested in the pictures. But I wasn't. But there was three people in the conversation. And, you know, I would have been satisfied with, oh, you went to Iceland. Oh, that's nice. But it's, oh, yeah, no, there's pictures. Oh, okay. A lot of pictures there. Don't remember opting in to this conversation. But it doesn't take anything away from Iceland and their incredible, incredible record of gender equality. And then finally... I want to give a commendation to Portland, Oregon. Oh, yes. A recent study by Lawn Starter, as published in the New York Times over the weekend, finds that after a study of 174 large cities across four different categories, Portland, Oregon is the number one city in the country for dog walkers. Oh, yes. Yes. The four categories are walkability, um, environment, services, and safety. And when you combine all four, Lawn Starter has determined that the best city for dog walkers in the country is Portland, Oregon. I love a good dog walk. I still will walk my mom's dog, Watson, occasionally, either when I'm visiting or when I'm dog sitting. And uh, I... We'll maybe put Portland on my list of cities to visit if I ever get a uh, a dog of my own again. They certainly have that great show with Fred Armisen, which is uh, quite funny at times. All right. Rob Astorino, Republican candidate for governor of New York, joins me next. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue with your calls in a bit. If you want to comment on anything we've covered thus far, 800-848-9222, 800-848-WABC. The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead.
4: W.A.B.C. <laughs>
10: Hi,
1: this is Frank Morano, and you are listening to the Other Side of Midnight on seventy-seven WABC. We're you know, well in our continuing effort to feature all of the candidates running for governor—Democrat, Republican, and Independent. We're joined by somebody today who is a familiar name and a familiar voice to not only New York State voters, uh, not only voters in Westchester County, but to listeners of this radio station, because he has a a lot of history with this radio station, not only as a guest, but sort of uh, as a cousin uh, to those of us that have worked at this radio station over the years. I'll explain more of that in just a second. I'm very, very pleased to be joined by former Westchester County executive, former Republican nominee for governor, and a current Republican candidate for governor of New York
16: State, Rob Astorino. Rob, thanks so much for joining me. Frank, good to be with an alum of the 17th floor Two Penn Plaza.
1: <laughs> so I, I think so many <laughs> folks uh, who have uh, followed your political career know about your tenure as Westchester County Executive. They know about your previous run for governor. They may have even uh, followed your uh, run for state senate two years ago. But I think a lot of folks may not be aware of your media career. I'm wondering briefly for, you know how many radio junkies we have listening this late at night or <laughs> early in the morning. Briefly explain to folks your history in New York
21: radio. Well,
16: I was listening to Curtis Lieber earlier, and he was talking about the history of WABC and talk radio, and and I started in local radio, WFAS, which is now basically defunct in, in Westchester County, and my first real job after WFUV, which was at Fordham University when I was there, was I was flying in helicopters and planes doing the traffic reports Uh, for a variety of stations, including ABC back then. So that was a lot of fun, getting to see New York wake up every morning. You know, we'd lift off at like 5.30 in the morning. Uh, It was a lot of fun. And I was hired by Disney in 2001 when they were ready to launch ESPN Radio in New York. And we did. We flipped the switch, and obviously it's been on ever since. But it was a whole lot of fun with uh, Michael Kay and – Curtis Sleeva and you guys were at WABC. I was at ESPN. We were all one family at the time, and we were all shared studios. And Rush Limbaugh would be there every now and then. Uh, Sean Hannity, you know, was in the office literally right next to me. So it was a whole lot of fun back then, and still is. And radio is is truly my first love. And and when people ask me what my career is, I don't say politics or government. I always say radio and TV. That was my Whole life still has been for the most part
1: now when i was talking to folks on sunday that i'd run into i was saying oh i'm having rob astorino on the radio and i said to a few of them and you know what it's like to take the temperature of the vox populi uh, because you've been on radio as a producer and as a as a personality and on air talent so i asked all these folks what would you ask rob astorino if you were interviewing him tonight and more than one of them said huh What has Rob been up to since uh, being defeated for reelection as county executive? So I think I guess that's a question that a fair number of folks are curious about. What have you been up to these last few years, uh, professionally, politically, personally, whatever?
16: I've been in the basement for four years. (laughs) Uh, That's how Biden got them, got the idea. (laughs) Um, After I left county government, I actually signed a contract with CNN. They hired me to go on the air as one of their very few republicans and i did that for almost three years during the trump time and i was defending donald trump and defending the republican platform and principles and and it was you can imagine how much fun that was every night going on with don lemon and chris cuomo and anderson cooper and a whole bunch of them uh and you know think it was a challenge but it i think it it served me well it would have been easier And I had opportunities to go on Fox, but it was almost much more challenging to go on a CNN into enemy territory and literally be one on four every night. And that was fine with me because we would win our share of the fights. But it was uh, was a whole lot of fun. And I left that about a year ago. And I also worked for the Archdiocese of New York, Cardinal Dolan, who I've known for a long time and, and loved. Uh, He asked me to come on board, and I launched a a big healthcare foundation, the Mother Cabrini Healthcare Foundation, and we did a lot of work uh, helping, um, you know, try to get rid of poverty as best we can in in New York and the archdiocese, and um, you know, food insecurity programs, uh, help for new immigrants into the community, and a lot of different things that we did, including previously incarcerated people to try to help them get back on their feet. So it was it was a different different life and I enjoyed it, you know, and I learned a lot.
1: We're talking with Rob Astorino. He is a Republican candidate for governor of New York State. It looks like we're headed towards both a Republican primary and a Democratic primary. So we're trying to feature all the candidates to help you decide who you might like to vote for. Rob, I think a lot of people remember your bid for governor against Andrew Cuomo back in 2014. And a lot of the warnings that you warn the public about with respect to Cuomo have proven prophetic, uh, not just on policy issues like energy, but in terms of corruption and a variety of other issues back then eight years ago you were the party's pick now, this time around, 83 percent of the state committee vote has rallied around Lee Zeldin, having been on both sides of that, been the beneficiary of the party support and now being the insurgent. I'm wondering, obviously, I would assume that it's better to be the party's pick, but uh, what is it like for you strategically, campaign wise, being an insurgent rather than being the, uh, for lack of a better description, the handpicked choice of the party leadership?
16: A lot more freedom, to be honest with you. You know, uh, you kind of do what you want to do—your own race, your own campaign—and in '14, unfortunately, there was there were too many. You, you remember this? There were too many Republicans who were playing footsie with Cuomo. They cut their deals. It was the old Dean Skelos Senate-led uh, majority who had their deal. The New York Post had a big story about this right after the election, and we knew it. Because we were not getting help from, from certain Republicans. They were endorsing Cuomo. They were uh, running wherever we would, when we would show up, they wouldn't show up. Uh, and that was the deal that they had. So, you know, I, I had the party's backing, yes, but they were also, unfortunately, really in bed with Andrew Cuomo at the time. And that's what they didn't like, because I was calling Cuomo out. I knew he was corrupt, I knew he was a creep. And I knew we were on the wrong, the wrong side of the tracks with regard to how this state was going. We're going down the wrong track. And I called it all out. And, uh, and some on our own team didn't like that, unfortunately, because they were very much entrenched in Albany. But, you know, some of the same cast of characters are now rallying behind my opponents. And that's okay, because I'm going to say what needs to be said, because our state is so messed up and way too many people have left. Taxes are out of control worse than they were. Then you add in the inflation and the economy and and the specter of a a third world war. And it's just, it's a mess. And and here we've dealt with the pandemic and how badly, how badly the decisions have been from first Andrew Cuomo to now Kathy Hochul and the repercussions are severe. You know, it's why we're dead last in this, in the country in economic recovery. And uh, you just, you add then the crime and the no-cash bail and, and just the, the, the ludicrousness of, of the left these days, and it adds up to we can win. I personally can win, and, and we're going to win. So it's one of those, I think, earthquake years, Frank, where just everything is coming into play now and everything is coming together. And, you know, look, we're going to have a primary, and that's okay. You know, some would say no, no primary permitted, which is what the establishment wanted. They had that deal done with, with Lee back in April of last year. And I said, OK, that's fine. I'm going to run a primary. And we're doing that. And, and that's not a bad thing, because in 2015, 2016, if we just listened to the establishment, we would have had Donald Trump uh, staying in Mar-a-Lago or Fifth Avenue, and Jeb Bush would have been the candidate. And he would have lost to Hillary Clinton, you know, and same thing in 2010. The establishment jumped on Rick Lazio, another guy from Long Island, and the money went to Rick Lazio. Well, Carl Palladino from Erie Mm. County said, no way. We need to take a baseball bat to Albany, not a little whisk, Broom, and be polite. And Carl Palladino petitioned his way on and won by 23 points. So you know what? I like where we are. I like where we are today, and I like where we're going.
1: Now, you alluded to the differences and the similarities between Governor Hochul and Governor Cuomo. Aside from their political party, how do you compare Hochul to Cuomo? I was listening to one Democratic commentator over the weekend say that uh, in some respects, because Hochul is much less of a a known commodity that it could actually be better for the Democrats because she doesn't have Cuomo's high negatives, whether it's on corruption or the nursing home issue or uh, personality or temperament. How do you view a Astorino hokal matchup as compared to an Astorino cuomo matchup?
16: That's what the Democrats are praying, but that's not the reality. She was for seven years Cuomo's partner. She was his hand picked Lieutenant Governor, she ran twice with him. She touted all of their successes. It's we, 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 she and Andrew. And she, of course, said nothing about the corruption, said nothing about the women accusations. She said nothing about the nursing home cover-ups or the executive order that basically put 15,000 people to their death. She did go around and, and say the no cash bail law was great. That was their signature achievement. So she owns all of it. She owns all of it, just like Andrew. They were partners. So the slime of Cuomo is all over her. And she hasn't even been attacked yet, really, by any of her political opponents, including on her side. She's gotten a free pass, and yet she's still real weak. Her numbers are very, very soft. People think we're going completely in the wrong direction. And people really aren't in a good mood right now because there's, they've been dealt with you know how to deal with all this nonsense for several years now and i think people just want some normalcy they want some balance and and they want some common sense and they're not getting it nor will they get it from this one-party rule i mean there's some frightening stuff Frank. that's hardly getting any attention and it's right around the corner there's a bill in the assembly and the senate that would make single uh, single-payer health care the law in new york no private health insurance permitted. You know, that's basically everyone's going to be on Medicaid, and it'll cost twice, twice the income tax rate to get it done. Also, I mean, she tried it. They withdrew it temporarily, but it'll certainly go back right after the election if they win, where they would abolish single-family residential zoning in the suburbs and and basically eliminate the suburbs. I mean, that I had to deal with for eight years against Obama – And I did not back down when it was easy to do so, when they're calling you every name in the book and coming after you illegally. And I won that. And so I know what they're looking to do, and I will not stand for that. That's going to come back, too. So there's a a hell of a lot at stake right now in New York, uh, and we're just getting going. And we're going to point out all of this. Uh, of how dangerous Kathy Hochul is and will be if she gets reelected.
1: We're talking with Rob Astorino. He's a Republican running for governor of New York State. If you want to learn more about what he's up to, if you want to donate or volunteer, you can go to the website robastorino.com, or even if you just want to sign up for uh, updates, that's robastorino.com. Back when you ran eight years ago, Rob, the head of the Republican Governors Association was Chris Christie. He sort of dismissed your challenge to Andrew Cuomo as a lost cause, even though you won almost every county in the state. Subsequently, were you at all surprised to see Governor Christie, who some (laughs) people are talking about as a presidential candidate again, having lunch with Governor Cuomo here in Manhattan on Thursday?
16: No, I, honestly, I wasn't. Uh, I, I was surprised that it took this long for them to do that. But, yeah, they they were like two peas in a pod in fourteen, and, and they themselves cut their deal. And that, I think, had everything to do with Bridgegate. I said it at the time, and that's why Cuomo forced Christie or whatever the deal was to basically come out and, and try to sink my campaign. We were down 40 points in the survey that was taken – In March of 2014, down 40 points to Cuomo. I think it was 65-25. And we closed that gap by 27 points with hardly any money, just outworking them. And, uh, you know, we ended up losing by uh, 13-something, whatever it was, and held them to 54. So it it was a tough race, but everything we said back then turned out to be true. And I caught a lot of flack for going against the Buffalo Billion and Startup New York and all the pay-to-play things that he was involved in, which I knew, of course, was, was pay-to-play. So we were, we were just ahead of our time, but, but we were right, and we're dealing with the same old stuff now just on steroids. Now, there are
1: at least three other candidates running for governor. Whenever I've discussed the race on the radio, uh, there's really very few people, at least in terms of callers, that have anything negative to say about you. But the attitude among a lot of Republican listeners seems to be, well, can't all these guys get on the same page? Keeping in mind what you said about a primary being a healthy thing, which I happen to agree with you on. Do you see any scenario in which you don't run for governor at this point? Could you see yourself teaming up with one of the other candidates and uh, maybe running for something else, maybe lieutenant governor, maybe congress, maybe state senate?
16: Zero chance. <laughs> We're, you know, when I decided to run last year, it was for a specific purpose. It was to use my skill set as an executive and I've been an executive in in private industry. And, of course, I got elected Westchester County executive, which is a a pretty big post. I mean, our budget was $1.8 billion when I walked in in 2010. And I left my successor a $1.8 billion budget. And that means we cut hundreds of millions of dollars out in order to be fiscally prudent and conservative. And we actually cut property taxes, never once raised them. You know, we reduced by mainly attrition, but we had a plan and we reduced. Uh, the size of government and headcount. And and then we did a lot of public-private partnerships to spur the economy. So I had a Democratic county board the entire time. And Westchester, as you know, Frank, politically, it's a graveyard for Republicans. It it is two and a half to one Democrat in the county. It's almost harder to win countywide as a Republican in Westchester as it is to win statewide. It's probably easier to win statewide. So um, no, I mean, I'm an executive. That's what I do. And and this is a real opportunity, not just as a party, but as a as a New Yorker to fix a lot of wrongs and try to put us back in the right direction. Or, you know, I'll be down in Florida like everybody else soon, but I don't want to go. I mean, it, you know, it's not easy to just pick up and go. We have family here. We have friends here. We have jobs here. We have our our, our history here. And I think a lot of people just want to stay and fight and, and, and reclaim this state from the lunatics taking it over. And that's why I'm, that's why I'm here. It's like I've heard the Viking call, you know. <laughs> I'm ready. I heard the horn. I'm ready to go. So, no, but I think we will all be united on June 29th, the day after the primary. And I've pledged this. I haven't heard others pledge it, but I have pledged it. I will be with whoever wins the primary. And I expect the same, too. If I win, and I, and I will win. We're all going to row the boat in the same direction, and we will all work with the conservative party. Whoever wins the Republican primary will also get the conservative party line. It'll be a united front, and we'll talk with one voice.
1: On uh, Tuesday or Wednesday of last week, Rudy Giuliani, who folks can listen to every afternoon at 3, even though his son is running, he actually praised you for your comments regarding the Republican convention and sort of the – Uh, this is his characterization, not mine, the lack of fair play that was present at the convention. Do you view this as sort of the three candidates that were not given an opportunity to be on the primary ballot? You, Andrew Giuliani, and Harry Wilson versus Lee Zeldin? Or do you view it as sort of um, uh, Rob Astorino versus the world? How do you view the dynamic going into the primary here? And do you share Giuliani's characterization that this was not a fair process.
16: Oh, totally. Uh, it, Andrew's right and Rudy is right and and others are right. And that's why, you know, I have no doubt that the regular Republican primary voter or Republican will see that, you know, when, they don't like to be told this is who it is, whether you like it or not. So uh, stand in line and get ready. That's what we've had. I mean, the process should have been Everyone go out, spend last year going around the state, making your case, and then let's let's coalesce behind a candidate if we can, or let's have the process play out. That was shut down in last April, where as soon as we started going out, it was, nope, let's do a straw poll. Everyone get together in Albany. We're going to do a straw poll. There we go. Where's our presumptive nominee? Well, if that's going to be the rules, then okay. Then I'm going to play – by my own rules then, and I'm just going to go out and play the game the way it's supposed to be played. That is meeting the voters and making our sure. case. And that's where we're at. And the, the Zogby poll that came out on Saturday reflected that. I, I'm the top Republican against Hochul. Uh, I lead uh, all other candidates. And I'm, I'm the closest to Hochul. I'll keep her under 50 points. And we've always said I'm going to be the best general election candidate because I've been able to attract Democrats uh, in the past. That's how I got elected and stayed elected in Westchester. I speak Spanish. I did a whole interview with the Univision in Spanish the other day about our candidacy and and the state. Uh, And and we've always done well with African-American voters and Asian voters. So we're going to be best positioned. And I think this race, I think Long Island, no matter who the Republican is going to be, is going to be red this November. I think upstate is going to be red as it normally is, but even deeper red this year, no matter who the Republican is. Doesn't mean we're not going to work it. Absolutely. But I really think this race is going to come down to who can turn over enough votes in the city. we got to get to about 30 percent. Who can build those coalitions? And who can win the Hudson Valley? Period. Nobody's going to be able to win or or even stay close in a Westchester. I can. Nobody's really going to be able to stay close enough in Rockland. I can, because Westchester and Rockland are like sister counties. And, and in Putnam, you know, we're going we're gonna to really romp. That's going to leave like an orange and a duchess where I'm going to be able to do well. So I think we're very well positioned. And in the primary, we're all bunched up. So despite Lee Zeldin having every advantage, being on TV for the last month or so, spending you know I, at least $600,000 doing that, he hasn't moved. In fact, he's, he's gone backwards. So I think we're in a good spot to start this and i can't wait
1: one we have a lot of republican primary voters in new york listening right now and a lot of them want to pick the best candidate not only the one with the best chance to win but the one that they agree with the most on the issues when i uh, listen to you and all the other candidates running you seem to be emphasizing a lot of the same issues, obviously crime, obviously the cost of yep. living, obviously taxes, obviously COVID restrictions. If you had to pick an issue or two where you really differ from the other candidates running, uh, are there any that immediately come to mind?
16: I think this race, yeah, you're right. I think we all kind of agree on the issues. I mean, they're the big ones that we all agree on them, right? Uh, the crime is crazy. Uh, we've got to re- repeal no cash bail, Um I, I, we agree on a lot of stuff. So that, I think, leaves a couple things. One, who can actually get elected? Who, who can draw enough votes? Because this is all about nothing if we don't get elected, that, right? And, and then we go to our records. And I'm very proud of my record as an executive in Westchester, uh, making some significant changes and, and really putting taxpayers first. I was obviously very fiscally sound in, in not raising the budget for eight straight years. We added 44,000 private sector jobs when I was there. And when the Democrats became real Democrats and went you know, off the reservation, like making Westchester a sanctuary county, I vetoed that. And it got a lot of national attention because we were one of the first counties to be able to do that, to veto it. When they tried to make uh, peacefully protesting outside an abortion cl- clinic uh, against the law with civil penalties, I vetoed that. When they tried to ban the gun show from Westchester County uh, – I vetoed that, and we had the gun show at the county center with no hitches whatsoever. It was the most popular show. And then I contrast that with Lee Zeldin, who was in the state Senate majority with Dean Skelos and and that group and voted for all the Cuomo budgets. You know, he was a reliable vote for for Cuomo. And obviously, as the New York Post had on page two a couple weeks ago, there was video of, of Zeldin and Cuomo together at a function, and Zeldin was, you know, saying... The, the this function in Albany is over, and it's never been better run. And that Andrew Cuomo should be president of the United States. If you didn't know that Cuomo was a creep and a corrupt thug, uh, the minute he stepped into office, then then we've got some big differences. So I think our experience, his in Albany, mine in Westchester, are very different, and it is very apropos to the job we're going for.
1: I think you know the cynicism of the New York radio listener as well as I do. And there are going to be some people that say, all right, you know, Rob Astorino had an opportunity to run for governor. He ran, he ran a good race, but he didn't win. And then you ultimately lost reelection for county executive and then two years ago you lost a very tight race for state senate there are going to be some folks that say look if rob couldn't win statewide he couldn't win in westchester county and he couldn't win in a state senate seat how can he win state uh, statewide this time around how can you persuade republicans that you're the uh, best option for them in if they want to win in november
16: that's a good question. And I think, you know, we heard a little bit of that last year. We hardly ever hear it anymore. And obviously, it, it's meaningless because in the polls, it's, it's really reflected that I'm right in the bunch with everybody in the primary. And against Hochul, I'm the, I'm the strongest Republican against Hochul. And, you know, look, those four years when Donald Trump was in office were really tough for Republicans all around the state. You know, a lot of really good Republicans lost. It's weird because when I was running for reelection in seventeen, I literally left office I, on election day. We had a sixty percent approval rating, and it was just the first chance that Democrats had to come out against Donald Trump, and and boy did they and and not only in you know Democrats but also Independents and even some some Republicans and um well, i'm not trying to make an excuse i think it is it is what it is it was what it was and it was really really tough sledding um that's over with though you know the, the donald trump is not president we've got biden now it's a whole new ball game new issues and nobody really looks backwards many many times it's where are we now where are we going and how can we get there so you know i if that was such a big issue, we wouldn't be where we are in the polls right now. Well,
1: fair enough. Rob Astorino, no one can ever accuse you of lacking for energy, enthusiasm, or ideas. We want to encourage folks, if they want to volunteer, if they want to donate, robastorino.com. Hey, by the way, did you pick a running mate yet, Rob?
16: Uh, I got your resume. <laughs> We're going over it. We're doing the background <laughs> checks right now, and we'll see.
1: I wouldn't even pick myself as a running mate. Uh, so we'll stay tuned for an announcement on a running mate, I suppose. Uh, you, yes, you can yes, follow yes. Rob Astorino on social media. Just go to com. Rob, I'm sure we're going to be talking a great deal in the next three months and the next
16: eight months. Look forward to it, Frank. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the other side of midnight. Absolutely.
1: Rob Astorino, if you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side
0: of Midnight. Straight ahead.
19: WABC.
0: We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. What's spreading in I'm even today
10: I wanna' be a part of this New York.
1: Liza Minnelli uh, singing New York, New York. Uh, We are broadcasting live from New York, New York. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Our phone number is 800-848-WABC. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Patrick, who's trucking in Missouri. Hello, Patrick. Hi,
9: Frank. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, the yeah, other few days ago, when Putin launched a missile attack on a nuclear, nuclear reactor in Ukraine, um, I got to say, when the guy says that he, you know, if America intervenes in Ukraine, that he would unleash, you know, all hell on NATO and perhaps the United States, I think the guy's got a lot of credibility when he says, you know, if you interfere, I'm going to pull the trigger. All
1: right. Well, I appreciate your two cents there, Patrick. Now, um, did you have a comment about Rob Astorino as well?
17: Uh I'm not real familiar with New York politics.
1: All right. No, no, no. It's just because the, the call screener put that up as your as your comment. All right, thank you. Cece is in Brooklyn. Hello, Cece.
9: Hello, Yeah. Thanks a lot, um Frank and uh and the lady, um Rita. I hope I called her name right. Um, Absolutely. Thank you, thank you. You're Uh, Mainly, Thank you for your response concerning uh, the hand in the, uh, what was it, the uh, frosted mini-weeds or something, the food, stuff like that? Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, I appreciate your response to that because pandemic needs no support. So, yeah, keep up on that. Thanks a lot. My comment is about, um, I caught pieces of it, Um, the Nephilim, the giants Mm -hmm. and all that. Uh, Anybody that wants to can look up the subject, um, grave site of giants it goes through all of that about the nephilim and the history different things um various governments various authorities have been finding grave sites all over the world and the average skeletal remains in these grave sites is like 10 15 feet tall you wow gotta look it up it, yes 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 it's it's i don't get a lot of attention on it but yes um all over the world for decades they've been finding grave sites and the, the surprising thing, you know, be surprised. The the authorities that find these grave sites, believe it or not, they go in there, they clean, they pull out the whole grave site, they pull up everything that's in there, all the fossils, all the, the skeletal remains. They take everything out of the grave site, and you would never know it existed. And this has been going on for decades. On and if you look up the subject grave site of giants, it's amazing.
1: Okay. Yeah, I will take a look at that. Actually, uh, Cece. I hadn't seen that. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Andy, I got um, a couple of CDs you sent on the history of Thanksgiving. I'm looking forward to listening to those. Oh, great, great! When do we get to hear them? Uh, soon, man. I'm going to try and listen tomorrow. So uh, maybe this time tomorrow, you'll uh, you'll hear it. Oh, That'll
13: be awesome, Frank. Hey, I like that guy. I hope he runs and does this uh, past know well, well,
1: yeah, he certainly has got a lot of enthusiasm, right? And a lot of energy. Yeah,
13: yeah. He does radio. I like when he does radio.
1: Yeah, well, he's got a lot of experience in that regard, Andy. Yeah.
12: Well, tomorrow this time I will call you. and speak to you.
1: All right. Thank you, Andy. Appreciate that. All right. 800 848 9222. You know, you were talking about uh, my exposing, my whistleblowing of Curtis putting his in the mini wheat jar. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, my wife was kind enough to make me lunch or dinner or breakfast. I don't know what meal it is when you eat at this time of day. I have no idea. But she made me a salad uh, to take to work on on Thursday night into Friday morning, and she put it in this Tupperware, and I ate the salad, and then I put it in the sink, soaked it in water, threw some soap in there, and then pretty much forgot about it. And I come home on Friday afternoon, and she says, uh, all right, where's my Tupperware? I said, oh, sorry, honey. I forgot it. And – She was not pleased. Now, she's been married to me long enough to know that I am the absolute worst, the worst, when it comes to Tupperware returning. In general, I have a no Tupperware returning policy. But Tupperware, and this is a nice container, Tupperware is very important to my wife. And this is not some... Garden variety Tupperware. I mean, th- this is a nice container that you could use for, I don't know, salads, sandwiches. I don't know, whatever sauces. It's a, it's a large container and it's got a, a very secure lid and everything. And I, all I could think as I was driving to work last night is, please let this Tupperware container be there, right? Because she is not going to be pleased. Otherwise, I'm going to have to go and buy her another one of these Tupperwares, which I don't mind doing, but it's just the time that it takes. I mean, I uh, my day is just crazed. Every day is just nuts. And if I have to add one more stop to any day, every minute of every day is just spoken for. And to add a stop to go search for this nice piece of Tupperware, forget about it. I'd be lost. So imagine my relief when when I get to work Last night, the Tupperware container is still in the sink it's still soaking so i was I was thrilled the The palpable relief that washed over my whole being. Does that ever happen to you? It's happened to me if I'd say many times throughout life where you're just on edge, you're nervous, and then just a an, you, all that nervousness, all that anxiety is wiped away in one moment. That is precisely what happened when I saw that Tupperware now unfortunately. This is not nearly as big of a deal. And, again, once my wife got into a Tupperware mode, she said, oh, and you know what? Your Uncle Steve never gave me back the Tupperware that I lent him. And she called him. And she never calls him. She calls him under the auspices of inviting him over in the hopes of getting that Tupperware back. But he didn't answer. He must have known. You know, he must be having a similar problem locating the Tupperware. But, anyway, you'll recall Friday – I brought in some of my Aunt Camille's egg salad to share with the good folks here. And I guess it was eaten because I just looked in the refrigerator and there's still some food from Friday's Employee Appreciation Day lunch. But I didn't see the egg salad, so I'm guessing they ate it. But I don't see that Tupperware, my Aunt Camille's Tupperware. Now, that's not that big of a deal because that's kind of like a, a cheaper Tupperware. It's like... um. I know Tupperware is a brand name and, you know, it's that's not the proper name. But that's almost like what you'd get with a Chinese food container or something. You order uh, a beef chow fun or something and it comes in like a, a black container with a clear lid. So I don't see that in there. I would like to return that to my Aunt Camille. I threw it out. You did throw it out?
12: Yeah. Did you really? Yeah, because I thought it was a cheap Tupperware.
1: And it well, I mean, Like you could get it at the Chinese restaurant. Was the
12: egg salad finished?
1: I ate it. You ate the whole egg salad.
12: I finished what was ever in that Tupperware. It was good, it was right? enough for a sandwich. It wasn't like much No, more. I know. Okay. That well, yeah. was amazing.
1: Yeah. See, I'm going to. That I'm was
12: gonna... uh, Friday morning. That was. All right. So you threw it out. I did okay. throw the Tupperware out. And right. I did think about it. I thought, should I save this Tupperware? I looked at it and I said, no, this is a cheap. It is cheap. This yeah. is not like the kind you okay. buy in a store. This All is right. Well, I feel
1: better. Point. At least there's some finality in this. It's like, um, you know, uh, Jimmy Hoffa. If we find his remains, at least we know he's dead. You know, it's, that's the kind of situation that we got there. 800-848-WABC. Um, so what is interesting, I, I'm sort of, um, I've given up everything for Lent. Booze, carbs, cheese, and real egg salad, which is one of my favorites. So my Aunt Camille called yesterday and asked if she should make egg salad. Now, I was going to call her on my way home this morning and say, don't make the egg salad. You don't have to. But a couple of things have been happening. One, I'm wondering if now maybe I should take it to give to the Matt Blazes of the world.
12: Absolutely.
1: And and two, some people have been wanting to see what she does that's so unique. And she claims it's nothing. She said, "Oh, I just throw salt and pepper in there." It's it's. And, and, but it's it. I'm telling you, it tastes different than everything else. But. I'm wondering, she makes it usually on Tuesdays. Maybe we can videotape her making this egg salad so that this technique is memorialized forever because I my mean, doesn't want me giving her age away, but she's, in, she's, she's up there. So, you know, who knows how many good egg salad making years she has left. Hopefully many, many, many. But I'm wondering about that. All right, so I, I'm thinking I'm going to tell her that, we do want this egg salad made. And if she can let me know when she makes it, I will come over and maybe videotape it. So I think that's the plan. That's the plan. Um, maybe we'll do that on the, uh, you know, as as I'm coming home today. She's up early. So 800 Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Yeah, probably.
12: why don't you just go buy a good piece of Tupperware? Well,
20: be, or, or go buy a a a pint of a Chow Fun. <laughs> Get the container again. That's well, I,
1: I see, Neil, I'm trying to avoid additional chores here. Right? The the whole point of this is to create more convenience, not not give me more tasks on my ever growing and ever expanding to do list.
12: No, I understand. You know, you know, Frank, if the Pope would make Lent all year round, by the time to Carbine is of age he would have enough money to buy a Bentley with all the money you would save on alcohol.
1: That's very funny. That's very funny, Neil.
12: I don't want to. The the reason I'm calling is I I saw Ron Astorino a couple years ago at the Staten Island Mall. He came for Veterans Day uh, Ceremony at the American Legion. The guy's a real upstanding guy. You know, a real nice guy, Frank. And uh, I I would vote for him in the heartbeat.
1: Uh, well, I know uh, real quick, only got about 10 seconds. You're a registered Republican out of everything you know about the candidates this year in the primary, who are you gonna vote for?
12: It's between Zeldon and Astorino.
1: All right, there you go. We get the Neil the Neil vote. Neil has a very powerful uh, constituency. until next hour your influence counts just like Neil so use it.
0: This.
1: Other side of midnight, I'm Frank Moreno. Thank you for starting your Monday with me. I hope you had a fun weekend or a restful weekend or a weekend where you got to do something that you enjoyed, whether it was uh, some recreation or just spend some time with friends or family, whatever the case might be, uh, or just maybe uh, read a good book. We had some nice weather Sunday afternoon, which was which was nice. It was very warm. I think today's going to be nice as well. So um, that's sort of the calm before the storm, as it were. Not only are we going to go back to colder weather, but next week is just one of my least favorite days of the year. It's the day where we set the clocks ahead. Where We'll we'll, we'll chronicle that next, maybe on Friday, we'll go through that. My annual spring rant about losing an hour of sleep. I just hate it. I just hate it. We'll, we'll we'll find something creative to do for that next week. Now, I, as you know, am a father of three months, and uh, I spend a lot of time. Even though my son doesn't seem to understand much of what I'm saying, he uh, he he smiles. But he smiles when I'll joke around with him or tell him things. But he also smiles at doorknobs. Right. He sees he if he sees a light that's turned on, he'll smile at that. Right. He 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 really he doesn't have sophisticated levels of speech yet, as most three month olds do not. So but I do spend a lot of time thinking about what lessons I am going to try to teach him as he matures. And my wife had a friend over my she's my friend, too, my friend, Jessica. And uh, but they you know, they they I I Friday met Sal Greco, who is in the midst of being lynched by the New York City Police Department. I met him for a cigar. And as I was I, so I left the house and my wife and Jessica kind of had, you know, girl talk for an hour and a half. Whatever girls do with girl talk. And they ordered Indian food. And so I come home and I said, oh, you know, what did you and Jessica talk about? And they said, oh, we talked about this, talked about that. Uh, we talked about how we're going to spend a lot of time at the um, at their, their pool over the summer because they have a pool. My mom has a pool. My dad has a pool. And I've always thought that it's an important thing to teach children how to swim because you completely eliminate, well, not completely, but you largely reduce one method in which people can die. I mean, if you think of... How what a benefit it is to learn how to swim and how many times that can help you in the event of unforeseen circumstances or even foreseen circumstances. I mean, the, the benefits are immeasurable. So it got me thinking, not only about teaching him how to swim, but it got me thinking about the lessons that were taught to me as a young person. And I remember... On more than one occasion, whoever the adult in the room was, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's an uncle, maybe it's an older cousin, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a teacher, maybe it's a camp counselor. On more than one occasion, the conventional wisdom, if you're at a barbecue or somewhere else, was you can't go swimming less than... 30 minutes after eating. And lo and behold, once I became an adult, because the theory was you'd get a cramp. Now, that always sounded pretty serious. And you, you watch with a clock. You have a, a hamburger or a slice of pizza, and then you're watching you're watching the clock. Oh, okay. 25 minutes, to, can I go in? Can I, can I, and you, your parents or whomever was in charge, they make you sit there and wait the 30 minutes. Now, once I became an adult... I found that there is almost no truth to that whatsoever. You can go into the swimming pool right after eating. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. I have done a lot of research on this, and I see no scientific evidence at all that you can't go into a swimming pool 30 minutes w- until you've waited 30 minutes after eating. So it got me thinking what other things. Do we learn in our youth that are completely untrue? Maybe it's a fact about our health. Maybe it's a fact about science. Maybe it's a fact about history. Maybe it's whatever. What do we learn? What do we teach to children in line with that? That is completely untrue. 800-848-WABC. I have made a short list of, of things that I think we teach children, intentionally or unintentionally, that are completely fallacious. No truth to it whatsoever. 1-800-848-9222. What do we teach youth that is completely inaccurate? That is the question.
0: Since before your son burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question.
1: 800 I'm going to give you a couple of mine, but I'd rather hear yours. So one thing that we teach children is that Napoleon was short. Napoleon was not short. I mean, he was not tall, but he was average height. Napoleon was, uh, you know, I think he was about my height. He was, by today's standards, he was about five seven. I think I'm five eight. Now I'm not tall, but he, you know, they describe Napoleon almost as if he's Danny DeVito, and that's not the case. Napoleon was of average height, especially for the 18th century. So I, I don't, I don't know how that got. Well, I know how it got started. It got started because. The old way of measuring height. He was five foot two, and people just say, "Oh, he was five foot two. Well, he wasn't five foot two. He was five seven, which is a much more a much more average height than what we've been led to believe. That's another. The other thing, and I got to tell you, I did some research on this. There's one that I'm going to tell you that I've always known, and then there's one that I just learned right before the show in preparation for this segment. Do you remember? In kindergarten, and this was one of the first lessons that I learned, do you remember in kindergarten or first grade learning about the tongue map? The tongue map showed different areas of your tongue which had which experienced different tastes. Oh, this part in the front tastes uh, t- tastes uh, sweet. And I remember my kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Paglia, a great teacher. But she said, oh, yeah, in the, ton- in the front of your tongue, that's where your sweet se- taste is. That's why they put sugar in everything, because it's the first thing you taste, and they want you to enjoy it. And in the back, in the back, that's where you taste bitter. In the middle, that's where you taste sour. On the sides, that's where you taste salty. I just learned today there's no truth to it whatsoever there's no such thing this is a popular misconception that different parts of the tongue are exclusively responsible for different basic tastes and it's been misleading children and adults for 120 years this comes to us from 1901 so um those are and th- so that's one that I just learned about Here's one that I made it my business to research years ago because this is something that I do probably, no exaggeration, 40 times a day, maybe more. And that is, I remember my, again, my second grade teacher, Mrs. Gass. How'd you like that name as a second grade teacher? Mrs. Gass. Mrs. Gass told me, don't crack your knuckles because it will give you arthritis. Completely untrue. No truth to it whatsoever. You can crack your knuckles as much as you want. You will not get arthritis. That is an old wives' tale. So what other myths do we teach children that are inaccurate? 800-848-WABC. That's 800 848 I have a couple of other ones. Um, but whether it's health-wise, whether it's science-wise, whether it's historical, tell me... What may be something that you always believed in until you researched it a little bit more, until you reached adulthood, and then you found that it wasn't true. Eight hundred eight four eight 848 wabc Now, Rocco uh, was holding a while, so let me give Rocco an opportunity to be heard. Hello, Rocco.
22: Yes, Frank. Yesterday, uh, my wife was looking at Facebook, and she had called me upstairs. You, Carmine's picture was there. He, he's so beautiful, Oh, Frank, thank
8: you. That's so nice. Oh,
22: my God. It's so beautiful. So beautiful. Thank, thank you. And by God. the way, if
1: people want to see that photo, um, they can go to my Facebook page, Facebook.com slash Morano Fan.
22: A beautiful picture. Beautiful. Thank you. Frank, my, I come from a family of six four brothers, and I remember my father telling us the lady across the street had lost her husband, Rosie. He goes, you call her Aunt Rosie, and every time you see her, you say, hello. And if if we didn't say hello and she said something to my father, he would say, now you go over there and you're going to spend an hour with her chatting. You know, that was uh, quite a bit. It was fun. But uh, in reference to Bob Astorino there, I really enjoyed the interview. I I like how he, uh, the Westchester County Executive, that uh, he cut the budget through attrition, lowered the taxes, I like what he had to say about Andrew Cuomo. I I enjoyed uh, his entire uh, speaking, uh, except when he, you know, spoke of uh, Congressman Zeldin with the uh, voting when he was a state senator. You know, sometimes when you vote as a state senator, you know, you're thinking of your Senate district and the constituents in that Senate district, and sometimes it'll benefit them. So. I uh, I liked everything with the interview except for when he commented and uh, and you know what a Republican primary um, uh, that's fine with me.
1: Absolutely, I think a primary is I very healthy I for both it. parties. Uh, absolutely, yeah. thank I you, Rago. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Mark is in New Haven. Hello,
9: Mark. Good morning, Frank. I, I don't know if you saw the article I sent you about uh, uh, Mr. McGregor on uh, Instagram that. Uh, Somebody took him to task, but that's not what I called about. All right. So the three, I got three. One is um, that if you if you touch yourself or you masturbate, you'll go blind. And the old line was, let me do it till I need glasses anyway. Number two is um, eating fat makes you fat. And there was a cover story on the New York Times Magazine several years ago at the time of the popularity of the Atkins diet, and they debunked that. And the third one, which is more recent... Established science for for generations that ingesting cholesterol would raise your cholesterol, and they debunked that. All right. Well, so those are my three.
1: Okay. Well, fair. Fair enough. We'll we'll put aside the uh, you know the the blindness one for a second. I feel like there's some debate about in the nutritional community about cholesterol. And uh, and fat. But we'll put that. Uh, we'll put that issue aside for for the moment. Eight hundred eight four eight W.A.B.C. Meantime, our illustrious leader, Chad Lopez, has just found his way into the studio. So you're making these four a.m. trips into here a, a regular occurrence. Now, is this your new time coming in?
4: You know, Frank, I just wanted to make sure that everything's going well and that uh, <laughs> we're, we're doing really well as a station. So we just got to make go all been. on board and on the same page. Well, outstanding.
1: Like <laughs> outstanding. How was your weekend?
4: It was great. I had a good weekend. You know, I slept a lot this weekend. Oh yeah, I well,
1: I, I, seeing the hours that you've been putting in. So, John, t- I, you were in here four a.m. on Wednesday or Thursday morning, or Wednesday morning, and then John tells me you were out to dinner with him in ten forty-five, eleven <laughs> p.m. at night with Cindy Adams for uh, her birthday. So you put in basically uh, an eighteen-hour day.
4: W- what's the saying? The early bird gets the worm. That they do. Oh, that's right.
1: They, you can't get any earlier than us. <laughs>
4: Well, it's great to see you, as yes, always. Good to see you. All right, eight
1: hundred eight four eight WABC. Ellen is in Philadelphia. Hello, Ellen.
2: Hi, Frank. Hello, brother. I love your show. I tune in every night. Well, thank and, you. You know, we'll when you,
1: keep it well, up, keep it up.
2: Hey, hey. You know, if you were if you were crummy, I wouldn't tune in at all. Exactly. But good. I'm up. glad
1: you said that when the boss was here. Oh, gee whiz.
2: Sorry about that. But you no, know, it's uh, you know I like the serious stuff in the beginning of the show. But then when you get um, kind of funny and you know it's just you know silly stuff, you know that's because you know I I get I wake up at you know 5:30 6:00 a.m. and I start my day. But you know after listening to you, I always have a good time. And it's just you know, it's not well. Um, that's the
4: idea. It's a point
2: of a radio. That's it's the a idea. Thanks. Hey, have you ever heard from Jay Diamond? Uh, yeah, we
1: spoke. Uh, we spoke a week or two ago, actually. You know, and um, you know, it's funny. A caller called Curtis, that guy that calls Curtis on the weekend, oh. claiming to live near me and see me putting garbage in my own house. A caller, oh, uh, somebody, somebody emailed me and said, "Oh, is that Jay Diamond?" And no, I could tell Jay's voice that it's not him. But I forwarded no. that email to Jay, and he got a kick out of that. No, it, well,
2: just, well probably an idiot. Just ignore him. Uh, uh, well, I, yeah, uh,
1: I'm just telling you, that was the circumstance that led me to talk with uh, with Jay Diamond.
2: Well, he's a cool guy. Yeah, he absolutely. He's a time, great. too. He's yeah. a good man. Uh, okay, I, well, you know, thank you for your time.
1: Thanks, Alan. I'll
2: be listening
21: tomorrow
1: night. B- thank you. Right. Clark's in West Virginia. Hello, Clark.
21: Good morning, Frank. How are you doing today?
1: Uh, strange and getting stranger.
21: Frank, I enjoy your show. I listen to you every morning. Three thirty until around five, and uh, getting ready to go to work. Well, morning. I need you and, to
1: get up. I need you to get up two hours earlier, Clark.
21: I'm roughing up already. I work for the Caddo County School Board, uh, Director of Maintenance, and it's a long day. Uh, getting up at three thirty, coming home at four, uh, so it's a long day already, Frank. But I wake up at one or two in the morning. I'll make sure I turn you on uh, until I fall back. All tomorrow.
0: right.
1: Well, that's the best we could ask for, Clark. Tell me something that we learn as children. That when we well, get into I'm sure adulthood, we learned it
21: there in, uh, in New York, but it's a crazy myth that we learned here in, uh, in West Virginia. And most, uh, many places I travel, I ask this question: um, is, is that which freezes first, hot water or cold water? Coming out of the stick, hot water or cold water? We were always taught this—the um, myth that that the hot water froze quicker. Right, and that's not true. That's not true at all.
1: It's the cold you water think. that falls. Fo- that cold. Is quicker, right? Well, of course. Of yeah, course. well, I mean, that makes people... sense. Okay, well, yeah, Clark, I mean, yeah, New Yorkers would never fall for that. You may fall for that in West Virginia. Uh, we don't fall for that up here. No,
21: no. they felt red here because many, many of the homes, you know, had opened uh, the crawl spaces yeah. and, and the hot water lines. Clark, which, which Clark, the cold water lines because they lay dormant all night.
1: Clark, I'm going to let you go because those West Virginia phone lines don't jive well with our uh, New York sensibilities, but keep an eye on Joe Manchin for us. Now, Another one that I, uh, that you always hear, right, when you're a kid, fourth grade, fifth grade, you know, even up until junior high school, is that if you drop a penny from the Empire State Building, that that is going to have so much force that it's going to kill someone. It's like a bullet. Now, there's still adults that believe that. Now, I always thought to myself, and I used to work in the Empire State Building, and I I think to myself, well, wouldn't there be troublemakers or just terrorists instead of worrying about hijacking airplanes that would be going to the top of the Empire State Building and just dropping pennies all over the place? And sure enough, there's no truth to that whatsoever. The most that a penny can go, even if you drop it from the top of the Empire State Building, is 25 miles per hour. Really? That that is absolutely the uh, the case. See, I like it when Chad's here. Matt's on the ball with the sound. But before Chad walks in, it took me 10 seconds to get the same piece of audio that we play every single day. Chad wow, walks wow, wow. in and you're Johnny on the spot. This is what's good about uh, Chad being here. Larry's in Brooklyn. Hello Larry.
0: Yeah, I'm
6: I'm I'm really referring to like some personalized things. I want to make the point that you shouldn't tell kids things just to, you know, just to silence them because They'll believe it the rest of their life. Like, for example, my father told me that if I didn't get to sleep on time, I would never be a baseball player. So I took it literally. I mean, I thought if I missed one night of sleep, literally, I would never be a baseball player. And then I find out Mickey Mantle is like partying until 3 in the morning when he came to New York. Now, that's one did you end up then, becoming
1: a baseball player, Larry?
6: Well, I had that dream till I was 22. I was going to go to spring training and try out. And then what happened was I became 22 and then 23. Yeah,
1: I Which got I you. Believe me, I can empathize.
6: But there's another one. Can I get, get you to give you another one? Yeah, give
1: it to me.
10: Yeah. All
6: right. My father used to tell me that if I screwed up my face, like if I pulled my ears out or, or made a face or something, my
16: uh, my but it would face stay, would that, stay that, way. that way. Yeah, that's
1: exactly. a popular one. That's a popular one, Larry. That that's a good one. Um, you you know which one that I have always heard? You know that is completely inaccurate, and even a lot of adults be, adults believe this to this day. And I didn't learn until high school that this wasn't the case. I was always taught that you can't begin a sentence with a conjunction, right? You can't begin a sentence with because or end. it's not true. And I begin sentences with because and end all the time. You know, you can begin a sentence with a conjunction. We've lost a whole generation, maybe even three generations of young people. That think you can't begin a sentence with the word because. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. We're going to do the thousand dollar minute coming up in eight minutes. You're not going to want to miss that. Robert is on Staten Island. Hello, Robert.
11: Hi Frank. Uh, I heard something. I think I heard something crazy on the radio. Um, I heard that. Well, then um, you were listening
1: to this show. If you heard something crazy, then you heard it from us. <laughs> no, it's not you. You're a sensible man. Thank you. I heard that uh,
11: that Poland. Uh, they're, uh, they're going to allow Poland to. Uh, have uh, airplanes fly from Poland in order to bomb Russians in Ukraine. Uh, it seems to me that's uh, a recipe for uh, World War Three.
1: Well, look, I hear right? we, uh, you heard that that's being talked about. We covered this on the Cats Roundtable this morning. That is uh, far from confirmed at the moment. And I, I tend to agree with you. I don't see that happening. And uh, President Biden, as critical as I've been of what he's doing here, I think he's been very prudent in not uh, adhering to President Zelensky's request for a no-fly zone. And uh, I think that the, uh, for the reasons that we went over in the interview with uh, Ted Galen Carpenter at 1.30, I think it would be unwise to ramp up military operations in general, but particularly from any NATO country. But we'll see. I know Chuck Schumer's been urging that and some others. If you didn't hear my interview with Ted Galen Carpenter, by the way, uh, you can listen to the podcast at WABCradio.com or just search uh, The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Moreno. Uh, one other myth that I was told, my mother told me, my kindergarten teacher, Miss Paglia, told me, that is not true at all, is that frogs give you warts. Now, they don't. There's no truth to that whatsoever ever. What else? 800 848 Gordon is in Canada. Hello, Gordon.
23: Good morning, Frank. Uh, I heard it was a toad that gives you warts.
1: Well, either one. They're, they're, you hear it about both.
23: Yeah, but I called about two old wives tales, one, both from my mother, is that if I put a penny on railway track to flatten it out, uh, it, it could derail, like, a, I don't know, a huge train engine,
1: oh uh, well, and that's Which, not true.
23: it's not true no okay and uh my my dad said, Well, you're just wasting money, why do it? <laughs> and the second one is, you know a potato,
1: yes, my, my friend Brian looks potato. a lot like a potato
23: <laughs> Said said the skin is where the uh, nutritional value is, and then somebody that I read somewhere that There's very little food value in a potato itself, except the majority of it is at the nucleus.
1: Well, I got to tell you, I never knew that either. If that's the case, I did see I'm still learning on this show, Gordon. Thank you. That's a good one. Gordon is calling from Waterloo. And I blame Gordon for a segment that we did on Thursday or Friday of last week. I was talking about um, people that get outside their comfort zone. And I specifically mentioned Frank Sinatra. And I talked about the, an album that he had done, a concept album, his only concept album. And evidently, a somebody on Facebook, and you can join our Facebook fan group. of uh, It's called uh, Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. Just search that, M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. Evidently. Apparently, and I am i was shocked to see, hear this, and I didn't want to go back and listen to the audio because I, I was afraid this caller or this, this commenter might be right. But apparently, I referred to this Sinatra album as Waterloo, not Watertown. Now, of course, I know it's Watertown. I, I've heard the album. I love the album. I've played that song from the album, Watertown. I know the former mayor of Watertown, Jeff Graham, who's been on the show. So the only reason I would have called it Waterloo is because Gordon was probably on hold from Waterloo. And I'm looking at the screen in front of me saying Waterloo. It's like when I I am meaning to say Andrew Giuliani and I actually say Andrew Cuomo. 800-848-9222. Joe is on Staten Island. Hello, Joe.
17: Yeah, Frankie, it's... um... One thing is swallowing gum is always a myth since I was five years old. Don't swallow your gum. But stick to your ribs. Remember yeah. that, the so,
1: I, I, you know, I, you hear all sorts of various things about why you can't swallow gum, but you can swallow gum. Is there
17: anything wrong with swallowing gum? No, I've been doing it. I'm 69 years old and I'm still alive and I've been swallowing gum. Since I've been five. I think, I don't chew gum
1: often, but I've swallowed gum twice in my life. And I was nervous both times. Because yep. they do reinforce this. This repeatedly. Can't swallow gum. Can't swallow gum. That's a good one, Joe. That is a very good yep. one. Well done. Thanks for listening. 800 848 Let me give you one more of mine, and I'll see if you have any others here. Um, uh, oh. The Great Wall of China, how often do you hear that you can't, you can see the Great Wall of China from space? It's not true. You can't see the Great Wall of China from space. Not true at all. Um, so that's one of those, I don't know how these myths get started and how they get repeated from generation to generation, but they do. And I... Uh, Number one on my list for Little Carmine is you can go swimming after eating. Maybe a little uncomfortable, depending on how much you've eaten, but you can go. I'll tell you what we're going to do in just a moment. The $1,000 Minute will give you an opportunity to answer 10 questions in 60 seconds. All you have to do is be the seventh caller. To 800 848 9222. That is 1 800 848 WABC. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead.
10: WABC.
1: Live by the Knickerbockers, uh, we are going to do the $1,000 Minute in just a moment. But uh, in the meantime, uh, Ralph in New Jersey has been waiting very patiently.
13: Hello. Okay. Well, when you're talking about children, what about the advisory from the CDC and Dr. Clown Palsy who talks about this virus that is from China that is totally misleading and spreading disinformation when it comes to our children. Uh, How about we we deal with that subject matter, uh, Frank Morano, okay? And they need to be vaccinated. No, they they don't need to be vaccinated. Why would our children be be getting the vaccine when they are not in the vulnerable category on that? It's the obese and the old people. Is it not, Frankie?
1: Uh, uh, Fair points all, uh, Ralph. Fair points all. All right. It is time now for one lucky listener to test his or her medal with answering trivia questions. It is time for
0: The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the Thousand Dollar Minute. Answer ten questions correctly in one minute, and you could win one thousand dollars. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Hey
1: let us first say hello. Let us say hello to Frankie in Glendale. Hello, Frankie.
6: Good morning.
1: Well, Frankie, I like your name, so I'm rooting for you. Thanks, man. All right. Now, uh, you're you're familiar with the contest. I know you listen to the show all the time, and uh, you call regularly. You know what to do, right?
6: Yes,
23: sir.
1: All right. Um, So the timer will begin after um, after I ask the first question. You'll have 60 seconds, and then we will go... Uh, from there, you ready to go? Very good. Okay, what planet are we on? Earth. What does www stand for in a website browser?
9: World Wide Web. Uh, name
1: one country that was part of the Axis powers in World War II. Italy. Um, what? country is Beijing in? China. What geometric shape is generally used for stop signs?
21: A hexagon. Uh,
1: I'm sorry. It is an octagon. An octagon.
0: All right. Yeah.
1: So I think we got five there, right? Five. Yeah. Well, well done, though, Frankie. You you were on quite a quite a pace. I appreciate the um, I appreciate the effort. I appreciate you being such a great promoter and a believer in this show. I know you spread the word to everybody in Glendale about the show all the time. Thank you.
6: Hey, can I add something in regards to uh, uh, what we were told as kids to grow up? Please. All right. That. Gasoline and oil are because the dinosaurs died.
1: Oh, is that not true? Isn't that why they're called fossil fuels? Well, fossils
6: basically, well, if they say that coal might be made from decayed plants, but think about it. It's it's the earth generating uh, uh, this type of uh, energy. Uh,
1: well, uh, well, that, that's, that makes sense, Frank. I'll look into that. Not really fossil fuel? Nope. Well, but you know, I, used to tell us it was. They told used to tell us it was
6: dinosaurs. Think about how many billions of trillions of dinosaurs there would have been for us to keep on pumping this oil and gas out of the ground.
1: Well, I mean, but there were a lot of dinosaurs. I mean, they are for a lot longer than than humans did.
23: Right, but it's it's not that.
1: All right, Frank, I'm going to put you on hold. Uh, Molly's going to take your information. We're going to give you a consolation prize. I'd say, uh, you, you know, these days what it looks like you, you get gas or petroleum from, it's when presidents die. Because if you look at the dead presidents that used to be in my wallet, they're all now being used to fill my gas tank. My goodness. price of gas is through the roof. I mean, it is Crazy. Crazy. Uh, by the way, people commenting in the Facebook group, and again, you can join that Facebook group uh, by searching M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters, or just go to Facebook.com slash Fan and click like or follow, and then you'll get an invite to the Facebook group. Ellen writes, Having Chad Lopez popping in every day is just like my principal constantly coming in to observe my lessons. It is like that a little bit. But I'll tell you what, though. Honestly, um, and look, I like to goof off and not have management doing – knowing what I'm doing as much as anybody. But the 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 thing that is true – and I've seen this when a, an assistant principal or a principal ob- observes a teacher. Maybe they're a little less relaxed, but they do bring their A game. They do make sure that is a, a lesson that that teacher wants to be known for. So maybe it's a healthy thing that Chad's walk, coming in here every day at 4 a.m. Uh, because uh, as I said, you know, we we noticed an immediate improvement in uh, Matt Blaze's ability. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. That's at eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two.
10: Blah blah blah. Well,
1: maybe I'll take that back. All right, um, but I think on the Bernie and Sid show today, coming up at uh, at 6 a.m., I think my friend Roger Stone is going to be on uh, the show today. Now, I I have not gotten the guest rundown yet when um, when Matt, um, when Matt Meany was producing that show, I used to get the guest rundown in a much more timely manner. But since he's moved on to be our program director, uh, the fellow that's there now, his name escapes me. um, He does not get me the guest list in a timely manner, so I can't promote it always. But anyway, I think Roger is going to be on the show. What a day to have Roger on. I don't know if you read this explosive article in the Washington Post about Roger, but this is really interesting stuff. And I think Roger is going to come on with me on Thursday. I wanted to give the morning show the first crack at talking to him this week. But um, I not only want to talk to him about this Washington Post article, which apparently is all due to him. Being around these Danish documentary filmmakers, and I'm of particular—that's a particular interest to me because I produced a documentary about Roger. It's called Get Me Roger Stone, and the three directors of that documentary—they wrote, um, you know, an, a, an op-ed about Roger that he felt was unflattering, and essentially he said that he didn't want to have anything to do with those guys anymore, and they wanted to do a sequel to that, and so I said, let me see if I can broker a piece. Roger essentially said, no way, no way, I'll do a documentary with someone else. So he gave these Danish filmmakers access to him for two years. And it looks like it was a total disaster. Looks, I hope he got paid. I'm going to ask him if he does come on uh, with me. I hope he got paid. But um, there was a lot of interesting things in this. I think there's a lot of stuff in this that actually uh, makes Roger look better. But. There's a lot of other stuff in there that's not going to make Trump supporters happy. He's caught on video, and the Washington Post has the video, in uh, denouncing President Trump as a disgrace, and uh, he expresses support for impeachment. But the thing is, if you know Roger, you see him fly off the handle, and I, again, we go back over over 20 years, you see him fly off the handle nine times a day. But the real thing that I'm interested in hearing Bernie and Sid uh, talk with him about is Officer Sal Greco. It was another article in Saturday's Daily News. He is about to be drummed out of the New York City Police Department solely for being friends with Roger Stone and for being a Trump supporter. And that is a real, real shame. And I hope. Uh, that uh, cooler heads prevail. Look, every day there's another article about Mayor Eric Adams um, being friends with a felon. And look, it's fine with me. They're shutting down a restaurant from somebody that he's friends with. It's fine. I don't care. I I live my life in that gray area. But Sal Greco has broken no law. And they're saying essentially that because he hangs around with Roger Stone that they're gonna drum him out of the department. And, and that would be a real, real uh shame. And th- we told you about this website, and I'm sure if Roger is on the um, on the on the show today, this website to help him out, it's called helpthisnycop.com. But it's gonna be uh it's gonna be an interesting trial, this departmental trial whenever it uh, whenever it comes to fruition. If you want to stay in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter at Frank Morano, that's Frank M O R A N O, or you can email me frank.morano at wabcradio.com. We're going to read your best and worst emails tomorrow. Uh, We have been curating a whole week of mail, and uh, we have snail mail, we have electronic mail, so if you want your email read, say something witty and pithy to me uh, via email at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And if you want to send a snail mail uh, you can do so, P.O. Box 1777, New York, New York, 10163. Just send it to my attention, Frank Moreno. And I have been informed that Roger will, in fact, be on the Bernie and Sid show today. So that is going to be one for the ages. That is going to be a show worth listening to. That's for sure. And uh, oh, tomorrow on this show, in the 1 o'clock hour, I know Drew from White Plains is going to be quite happy In our continuing efforts to profile all of the gubernatorial candidates, we're going to talk with Harry Wilson. Harry Wilson's going to join us in the 1 o'clock hour. And Mike Tracy, who's a veteran journalist who's been on the show before, he's going to join us from Poland tomorrow. He's going to be calling in live from Poland. We'll find out if uh, what that caller who had called a minute ago from Staten Island was asking about is, in fact, true, whether they are going to be using Poland as an opportunity to, uh, you know, carry out more military missions with, um, you know, with uh, the Ukraine situation. Now, uh, my brother Nicholas, great guy, great young man. He drives me crazy. He's a Marxist and he's getting married in Hawaii. And I will tell you, the the latter of of which is the more annoying thing. I could deal with Marxism, but then you deal with a 12-hour flight. That's... You know that's another matter, but uh, he's terrific, and his wife cat or his wife to be cat is terrific. So he sends me an SMS text message asking, "Do you know Steve Kastenbaum? And I said, "And and again, he sent this to me in the middle of a bunch of things." You now, Steve Kastenbaum was a reporter on Ten Ten Winds for a long time, a long time radio reporter. And if you remember when I was co-anchoring the five AM hour, he was on the five AM hour as a guest. Talking about his podcast a couple of times. So I said to Nick, I said, I don't know that we've ever met. And then he says, he's a radio person for CNN who lives in our building. I said, yes, I know who he is. And he says, and he sends annoying emails to the building listserv. And he responds, can you denounce him on the radio? And I said, absolutely not. I said, one, you should not be using, well, I didn't say this, but I'm thinking this out loud. You should not be using your familial relationship with me to settle personal grudges and get me to denounce people. And two, I'm sure people think I send annoying emails all the time. And he says, why not? He made little kids wear masks at a Halloween party. Now, I did not know that. That's another matter. So I may, I may what I might do, I'm not going to denounce him, but what I think I might do, is invite Steve Kastenbaum on to talk about his podcast or whatever it is he's doing and then say, by the way, I was informed that you you made little kids wear masks at a Halloween party. Is that true? I hope that's not true. Um, If that is true, that might be worthy of denunciation. So we'll see. 800-848-9222. 800 848 We're going to do the uh, the uh, 15 seconds of fame in just a minute uh, where you'll get an opportunity to comment on anything you like for 15 seconds. That's a 800-848-WABC. I had a fun weekend, though. I'll tell you, I didn't get to see my brother Nick, but uh, yesterday, Sunday, I did see my brother Nick, uh, my brother Alexander, and my sister Claudia. And it is interesting. There are some weekends where you feel like you did a lot, And then there are other weekends where if you look at what you actually got done, it doesn't seem like you moved the needle very much. This was a weekend that I didn't really have much scheduled, but I feel like I didn't have a moment the whole weekend. So on Saturday, um, we had this grandfather clock delivered. you got to be home for that. And then I finally got around to returning all my cans and bottles to the grocer. Now, I had $24, maybe $25 worth of cans and bottles to return to the grocer. Now, most grocery stores will only let you return $12 a day. So I had to divide it among two grocery stores. But it was just so satisfying. My wife asked me recently, why do you do this? I mean, do you do this for the money? Um, Do you do this? You know, Because if you're doing it for the money, you spend so much time on this. You could make $12 doing almost anything else in an hour. That's less than minimum wage, she says. And she's right. And she said, do you do it for recycling purposes? Because you could just put it out in the street and they'll pick it up and recycle it just the same. And the answer is, at this point, I don't know why I do it. But I am compelled to continue to bring these cans and bottles to the grocer. There is something I find so satisfying about putting that bottle or that can into the redemption machine and see it. It, it just accepted and then ratchet it up a nickel. It, this is just something that's so satisfying. about it. So we had the grandfather clock come. We did the cans and bottles. It was, I went to a blood drive um, on uh, Saturday. There is an urgent need for blood donations. So if you have not given blood in a while, Please, uh, th- and this is nationwide, there is a huge problem with blood donations. So uh, it's a great way to help some people, and uh, it doesn't cost you anything, and it doesn't really even take much time. So I, I did the uh, the blood donation, and then I had to deliver $1,500 to my cousin-in-law. I'm not sure. Listen to this familiar relation. So it's my wife's sp- First cousin, once removed, husband. So what is that to me? I'm not sure it's anything. But anyway, so I had to deliver money. Somebody owed him, so I delivered that. And this made my day. He gives me a bottle of wine. Now, again, this is going to be held in obeyance until the end of Lent. But that is my kind of delivery. So he had the blood, the cans, the, the money, the grandfather clock. And uh, my my brother-in-law, Daniel, came to visit on Saturday, which was uh, which was nice. And then my wife and I finally got to watch a movie, which was the... Uh, it took us eight pauses in between Carmine Crying. We got to watch Don't Look Up, which we both enjoyed. And then uh, Sunday, we did the Cats Roundtable. If you didn't hear it, you can listen at to the podcast at uh, WABCRadio.com or at CatsRoundtable.com. We covered a wide variety of issues, Richard Schwartz is part of these conversations now in the morning. So I like it. It really is a roundtable. You have uh, all sorts of different perspectives on all sorts of different things. So that was a lot of fun. We'll do 15 seconds of fame next. If you want to be heard, there's one, two, three, four open lines. 15 seconds of fame. Straight ahead.
0: WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
1: I spoke with Andy earlier, and he called in, and uh, he made this song, by the way, and did a great job. I think it's a terrific song. He did send me three CDs on this song that he recorded on the history of Thanksgiving, because I've been complaining for years that there's no good Thanksgiving songs. You have nine million Christmas songs, and no good Thanksgiving songs. So I'm looking forward to listening to this. I'm going to try and listen today, and even though it's not quite Thanksgiving, I am going to... Play it for you tomorrow if it's worth playing for. And Andy is actually a a terrific musician. He really is. Coming up at 5 a.m., you will get to hear and see the WABC early news with Deb Valentine. And then Bernie and Sid featuring Roger Stone coming up from 6 until 10. And uh, you could stay in touch with me at um, by emailing frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Frank Morano at wabcradio.com or at facebook.com slash moranofan. I got this nice message here from uh, Sam who writes, love your show, Frank. Listen every morning from Pittsburgh. That's very nice. Pittsburgh. I don't think I've ever been to Pittsburgh, but uh, it's nice to know that if I ever make it there, I'll at least have a friend. Uh, coming up tomorrow, we'll uh, bring you the latest on this Ukraine situation. We've got some good UFO stuff tomorrow as well. And uh, as I mentioned, New York gubernatorial candidate Harry Wilson. But first, it is time for you to be heard for at least 15 seconds. It is time
0: for The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Fame.
1: Kirk is in Freeport. Frank,
12: what do you get when you touch Dwayne Johnson's hand? I give up.
18: You hit rock bottom.
1: All right. I'm sorry we didn't have the rim shot ready for you there. There you go. Al is in the Bronx.
14: Chris Lee is an artista, a fascista, and he should go to Ukraine and face the Russian front. Period.
1: 800 wabc Jerry in New Jersey. Joe Biden's been compromised. Turn on the spigot. 800 9222
17: Charlie Finch. Hello. If you listen to the last 20 minutes of the show, you would have heard from Frank Murano the exact same subjects you would have heard down the dial or up the dial eight years ago. Frank Murano as comfortable and reliable as an old pair
14: of shoes.
1: Steve is in Ron
17: Concoma.
14: Sizzle moron, sizzle
1: Mike is in Montclair.
12: Morning, Frank. Frank, step on a crack. You break your mother's back. Now she's got back issues, and she wants to know if I stepped on any cracks. Probably. Bob is in Queens. Yeah, this nonsense about the election has been stolen. Has got to stop. They're at it again. Mike Lindell is calling for the machines to be uh, to be cert- to be certified. I mean, this is crazy. Already enough of this. It's two years past the election. Get over it. Larry's in Brooklyn.
6: On the heels of that, we now see the worldwide consequences of a stolen election. When you install an illegitimate and weak president that didn't want it the job to begin with, this is what happened. The war- World War Three, comes to your doorstep. Rick is in
13: Tom's River. Good morning, Frank. The real Thanksgiving song. I thought you will remember. We gather together and it's working. Uh, Joe in
1: Forest Hills.
12: It is a big dickhead. We couldn't sleep off. Uh,
1: Neil on Staten Island.
12: Thank you for listening to my 15 seconds last week. Having an alien segment. I was able to watch the end of the Rookies and two segments of pop of Fox Nation.
1: Uh, Joe is in Ron I
21: want everybody to go to their window. Open your window and
8: scream. I'm mad as hell and I won't break it anymore.
1: Uh, well, if it's your car window, just be careful. Pull over first before you scream out your car window. And finally, Ralph in New Jersey.
18: Okay, I wanna commend the, the uh, people who fight. For, and then we have of, uh, Ukraine uh, who volunteer to fight there because they have a profile of courage. And uh, according to the uh, courtesy what they are combat in chin. Outside and salute them. Thank, Thank
1: you. you, Ralph. Uh, Ralph, uh, I have no idea what you said, but I appreciate the fact that you said it with a lot of passion. And uh, you know what I learned years ago? Uh, the, if you walk into someplace, and this was particularly true pre-9-11, but even still to this day, this is the case. If you walk into somewhere and you have no business being there, but you look like you belong there, and you walk with a purpose and a confidence... You could walk into anywhere. Anywhere. I walk into parties all the time that I'm not invited to. I walk into place after place and I just walk right in. And a lot of that same mentality is true with communication. Now, I have no idea what Ralph said there. I don't think, you know, I I don't think people speaking either English or Filipino know what Ralph said there. But... You know what? You just listen to Ralph with all that energy, with all that passion. You think, oh, yeah, well, well I I agree with that. You know, he says it with a certain gusto. All right. Uh, I'll be back at 1 a.m. Monday morning. Stay in touch with me at Frank Morano on Twitter. That's Frank M-O-R-A-N-O on Twitter. You know, I'm trying to make heads or tails of that Charlie Finch comment in the 15 seconds. of fame. You know, Charlie has been... He has not been calling the show as much these days. And everybody's commenting in the Facebook group. Where's Charlie Finch? Where's Charlie Finch? And to make your your return to the program with sort of a weird comment like this, this is the same thing Frank would have done up the dial or down the dial eight years ago. I don't know what that means. I don't think that's true. We keep it fresh. We do a lot of fresh things. Uh, how would I have talked about my brother's issue with Steve Kastenbaum eight years ago? Right. How would you have talked about kids being wearing masks at Halloween parties eight years ago? Couldn't have. Couldn't have. Am I right? You know, this is fresh content. Please, Charlie. Please. All right. The uh, WABC early news is next with Deb Valentine. I will be doing the uh, business reports at least twice per hour at 5 a.m. My favorite is that guy who comments on Facebook. What does Frank know about business? He's always, you know, looking for money. Well, you don't have to be good with money. To report on, say, what the stock market did. See, it's two totally different things. Just like I don't have to be good at, uh, you know, curling to tell you who won the curling match. That's that. All right. Um, (laughs) I'll be back at 1 a.m. The WABC Early News is next. Frank Morano, good day.